check, 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 check. Yep. Take a long hot shower and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies nobody else wants to talk about. This is episode number 60, and my name's Jakub. And my name's Nick. And today, we're also joined by our good old friend, Randy. <laughs> Randy's in the house. How are you doing, Randy? Good. Good, good. Fun to be here. You. Thanks, guys. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and we're all excited and ready to rumble, aren't we? So. Yeah. Let's get on with this. Let's go on to this. However, before we do this, a few few things housekeeping wise, we're doing our De Palma March, <laughs> four decades of the Palma series. So yeah, last week we did Phantom of the Paradise. That was the seventies. Today we're doing the eighties. So we'll be talking about Dress to Kill. In addition to this, we're also uh, I have I, I took the sort of the the uh, I don't know. Made it an opportunity and then turned the palm arch into the palm arch, the palm madness. So on Twitter, on Twitter, I'm kind of running a little bit of a, a little bit of a tournament of trying to figure out what's the best the Palma film. It's a whole bracket. All of his all of his films are in there. So you know, if you're listening to this, just head over to our Twitter, follow and vote. By the time this is out, it will still be I think in like the round of sixteen or I think something like that. It's gonna be running until. My, according to my calculations, this is going to take until the end of March. Possibly the the, the finale is going to take place on the first of April. But you know, I, yeah, I'm doing organ. I'm, I'm an organic chemist because I I'm, I don't like maths. So, <laughs> so you know, I'll just put it that way. Um, yeah. So, in addition to this, we have just about recorded, and I think we've already dropped. By the time you listen to this, we've dropped on our Patreon the uh, March retrospective that ties into this, <laughs> the, the, into the Palm March in a in a way, because it's kind of sort of connected at the hip to uh, to to Alfred Hitchcock, which you know we all know Brand Palma has been has been referencing mercilessly, and then we we will get to it today as well because it's you know that Drastical is kind of an obvious pick as well in that regard but we've talked about uh with about three dario argento films together with nicolo and then so go, head over there subscribe and listen to our to us talk about deep red tenebrae and phenomena three bucks a month ain't much and then you'll get some extra podcasts to listen to while you're vacuuming your house or i don't know so pa- patreon.com slash uncut gems pod is the place to go so you can all you, you can go and do that and then also while you're on on our Patreon, next week we'll be dropping another sort of March installment of our David Lynch marathon, a year-long journey through, comprehensive journey through David Lynch's filmography. So we're now on episode number three, and then we'll be talking about Dune. So that's just all the housekeeping I had. And then if if you if you wonder why there is too many ums and ahs in here, it's because I'm trying to trying to wean myself off of scripting things too much. <laughs> Uh, and then running, running a little bit more sort of freely, like Nicolo likes. <laughs> Yay! So, so there's me embracing freedom and it's fucking scary. <laughs> the <laughs> fresh air. You've left Improv, the cave, baby. Improv. <laughs> oh, just a little bit for now. Just I'm dipping my toes in this for now. But so, like the synopsis of the film, I still have I've, I've written it down because you know. Anyway, so let's just do this, shall we? So let's just talk about dressed to kill. <laughs> 
Now, but you're not a psycho. You do know some, though, don't you, Doc? Yes, of course. I do some work at Bellevue. Hey, uh, could she have met one of these nuts at your office? I mean, some kind of weirdo she could have turned on that might have followed her? The term we use, Detective Marino, is not weirdo, but a person suffering from emotional dysfunction and a problem of maladaption. And they never come to my office. Are you sure? How about a new patient? I mean, uh, how do you know how nuts they are until you see them? Well, of course, that's possible, but it's hardly like that. You're not protecting one of your patients now, are you? Absolutely not. Written and directed by Brian De Palma, Dressed to Kill stars Angie uh, Dickinson, Michael Caine, Nancy Allen, Keith Gordon and a few other folks in a steamy and erotic neo-noir thriller about a sexually depressed wife. Uh, I think Kate Miller is her name. That's Angie Dickinson, who sparks up an affair with a random guy only to be mercilessly murdered by a mysterious woman with a razor blade who then sets her sights on the only witness to this murder, a high-class prostitute, that's Nancy Allen, who together with the son of uh, the murdered woman take it upon themselves to solve the mystery and find the identity of the killer. So, apparently in the, 19, in, the, in the late 1970s, the Palmer was working on adapting an article titled Cruising, and if that title kind of rings a bell, it probably should. Um, because it was later take, taken on by William Friedkin because like the, the Palmer couldn't kind of get the project off the ground for some reason. At some point, we should probably just do a cruise in at some point in the future. It's a it's a great episode. That's an uncut gem, right? <sighs> anyway, he took off a, took a few bits of his of this script with him and then reworked it into his other script, which then turned into Dress to Kill. Um, so he initially wanted to cast Sean Connery in the role of Elliot, which is the psychiatrist in the film. But due to scheduling clashes, he couldn't do it, even though Sean Connery was very much on board with it. He also wanted Liv Ullman to play the role that went to Angie Dickinson. But Ullman declined based on her objection to violence in the script. Like, did she not see any De Palma film? I don't know. Anyway, so as per tradition with, with early De Palma movies, also Dressed to Kill became a bit of a nightmare to release because the MPAA slapped it with an X rating. So a few other... A uh, few choice cuts it had to be made to bring it down to R. Yeah, it is now available to watch in an unrated version, so you don't have to worry about finding the right cut, I think. So nevertheless, critics at the time liked it. I think Ebert liked it, Cisco liked it, Pauline Kale, who is like, has been like his champion, the Palmer's champion all throughout his career, I think. She loved it dearly. <laughs> and... <laughs> Notably, and I think we'll get to it because it might be impossible not to, Dress to Kill became somewhat notorious among the budding trans community in the 1980s. Though according to the Palmer, the gay community embraced it as a flamboyant cult classic at the same time, which is a weird sort of, sort of situation to be in. I think we'll get to it at some point anyway. And this sort of infamy has only rose in strength as um, only risen in strength <laughs> as time went on. Thus, it stands as a bit of an awkward movie in De Palma's filmography, literally a movie that's a bit too hot to talk about. So in a way, um, it is perfect for the re remit of our show. So let's just dig into it, shall we? So um, what's your opinion on Dress to Kill? Is it an atmospheric and slick exercise in genre filmmaking capable of defending itself on merit? Or is it an awkward hot potato drenched in sleaze that belongs in the dumpster of cinema history? What is your take on Dress to Kill. So, Andy, tradition dictates. 
<laughs> so that you, you just get us into this. Sure. I've, I've seen Dress to Kill several times over the years. I've probably seen it four or five times. Um, and honestly, it keeps getting better each time that I see it. Uh, this is an excellent example of De, Palma, of De Palma's meticulous nature in crafting his scenes and uh, designing specific shots. So you can tell this is a very well-crafted piece. There are a lot of big uh, set pieces in non-traditional ways, uh, but there is... Uh, a ton of uh, predetermined and pre-imagined and storyboarded uh, work that, that goes into the, the prep for, for these scenes. And I think it's on full display here. Uh, there are very clear ideas in De Palma's visual language, and he's uh, using a lot of his traditional uh, you know, uh, gimmicks and, and tactics, but he is crafting a beautiful visual um, and fairly complex uh, set of scenes. Um, it came at a time where he had a number of modest successes under his belt at this time. So I feel in watching Dress to Kill that he's starting to show a certain amount of uh, swagger as a, as a filmmaker. There's a, there's a confidence here. He's developing his own script. He's developing it from uh, scratch. Um, and there's a lot of very personal details from De Palma's, De Palma's ideas, De Palma's uh, own family history. There's a lot of ideas that he pulls from his own life that are uh, embedded in here. Uh, a little bit more than any of the films I would say uh, previous. Um, this is a very, very, very good film. Um, so, and I, I'll just say here, I think that even though he uh, sort of gets labeled as a Hitchcock ripoff artist, it's there, but that is not strictly what his films are about. Like that's that's just one of the ingredients that he uses, and uh, this is very much a De Palma film, and uh, it's it's excellent. So look forward to seeing what you guys think and chatting about it. Mm -hmm. Fabulous, Nick. Tell me, tell us what do you think. Love it. Dress to Kill Thank is you. an excellent <laughs> film. I'm, I'm I'm out. Bye. <laughs> No, it's 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 great. It's great. Um, it's one of those movies that, at least back before I watched it, it wasn't that much talked about in terms of just cinema in general. I'd I'd I'd, I'd see Dress to Kill, like the poster and stuff, but I didn't know what it was about. And it wasn't until I made my pandemic short film Katabasis in uh, in university, where one of my professor I showed it to him, and he said, "Oh, this is cool." Oh. Were you inspired by Dress to Kill for the elevator scene? I was like, no, I what what's what's Dress to Kill? I haven't seen it yet, oh. and so he recommended it to me, and I watched it. I was like, oh, I I can see where he thought I might have taken inspiration from it, and he was like, oh, maybe you should try to extend the tension like the Palma does. I was like, I don't know, it's, it's too much, it's too much work. I was a lazy boy, but he got me into watching this movie, and I watched it, and I loved it back then. And it even ended up inspiring, though not as much as I wanted it to. I wanted to be more inspired by it. But it ended up inspiring a sequence in my short film, What Happened with Alain, shot inside of a museum. And I showed it to everyone, cinematographer and stuff, because in my mind, I don't want to get ahead of everything. Just The museum sequence, Interest to Kill, it's one of the best scenes I've ever seen in the history of cinema. Really? It's, honestly, huh? it's a perfect short film. 
just take it out, remove it, plant it in a, in a YouTube video or whatever. It's excellent. I adore it. And I wanted to kind of recreate something similar in my short film. The only thing is we had three hours to record like five, six minutes of footage in three different locations around the museum. So we didn't do it as as good as the palm, unfortunately. Did you but... have a sex scene in a taxi cab? Sorry. <clears throat> no pandemic, no ways to have that type of contact, you know, unfortunately. But that's 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 it. Just not only like rewatching all of the Palmas body of work, almost all of it, for this month. Not only did I end up absolutely loving his career and his filmography, but I also kind of feel that he's someone that I should try to take more things out of. Because he's he's just so good at crafting set pieces, tension, character using all of the cinematic elements in great, brilliant ways, I think he's someone that should be just held in high regards. That should make him proud, because we're related. Damn it. Uncle Brian. Bless him. <laughs> anyway, Jakub. Have you actually met him, or is it just like... I have... Re- second well, I... cousins four times removed. <laughs> He is the son, like his father, <laughs> the one that we'll be talking about in a few minutes. Uh, he was oh, yes, the cousin of my great-grandfather. Oh, nice. So everyone knew all of this shit personally. <laughs> what happened? Oh. And I did see him in Venice, 2019. I was there at a conference and he was there on, on the stage and there was like two rows in. I was like, ah, there he is. Hey, Uncle, Uncle Brian. Brian. Uncle Brian. Brian. Who is this man? <laughs> yes. I love that everyone was like, oh, you, like maybe you should ask, tell him about it and he can give you a job. I was like, he, he cannot get a job. He cannot <laughs> yeah. make movies. Why would he help me out? It would be the other way around, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you think about this, you'd be giving him a job. <laughs> oh, man. He wishes. Anyway, Yaku, <laughs> your thoughts on Dress to Kill? Well... Uh, the tweet from 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 watching this sort of this this sort of one liner review on Letterbox would be this is dress to kill is how you remake Psycho without remaking Psycho, <laughs> pretty much pretty much and then it, I mean it in the best of ways, uh, because it's a blast like it's an it's <laughs> I just I keep rewatching and, and oh, this is the first time for me by the way, um, I keep watching Ooh, wow. and watching and then just oh. filling the blanks in De Palma's filmography and then just I'm continually continually challenging the sort of the ranking in my own head. I'm just like, well, these these films are getting better and better. Like, holy shit! Like, how am I supposed to think about them? And at some point, I think I'll eventually start thinking about at least about the good majority of them the way I think about Tarantino films. Like, they, they are just all great. I don't care. Stars don't apply. Um, but uh. I've always, <laughs> ever since I started watching that the Palmer films with a bit more of a sort of keen eye, because you know, like I saw like Mission Impossible in like the nineties and like, the Untouchables and Scarface, and, and when I was like in my teens, and I didn't really pay attention to these things being like the Palmer films, or just great films about gangsters and spies, because you know, like I, I didn't come to like film analysis like I don't know people like like youngsters these days do where they'll just like set their sights on becoming a critic and they'll just try to be very thoughtful and analytical I was just like no I was I, I was just enjoying watching the films and then I just started developing opinions on them and uh for, I'll say like for in my head Brian De Palma is like the sort of the the paragon of American Jallo like I've all 
ever since I kind of clued into his connection to Argento and Bava and Hitchcock, I kind of saw him as he's doing what the Italians were doing on in in Italy at the same time, only only better. Yes, <laughs> put it this way. <laughs> and I, I'm just looking at this, and then Dress to Kill is honestly the best example. And we've just spent almost three hours talking about Deep Red, Tenebrae, and and phenomena. Just head over to our Patreon to to subscribe and listen to this conversation. We just spent almost three hours kind of trying to identify the certain sort of aspects of what makes Jallo films work and where they fail to work and what would, would make them cook a bit better. So, and for, for my money, the answer is... Uh, like they should, you should probably just look at the Palmer pictures because he's essentially making these films the way they should be made. And Dress to Kill is the sort of the essential Jallo film that he made, I think. So he's taking the, because uh, I think Randy, you just mentioned that it's just like, oh well, you know, it's like it's almost too reductive to to see this as a as a, as a uh, Hitchcock rip of art because he takes these concepts and he runs with them to places that Hitchcock would have never even think of running to. And then he's running into similar in, in through similar territory that like Dario Argento would be running in 1975 when he was making Deep Red or only he's doing it using not well not not well committing to quality filmmaking. Everything's slick, everything's perfectly organized. These shots are pre, pre I don't know this they're there's so much thought going into every single crane, every single steady cam maneuver, every single pan. Like you know, even even just if you think about his split diopters and split screen gimmicks, and then these sort of weird dissolves as well. They're all. They're not nothing's accidental in here, and it and it's such a beautiful gem to appreciate. It's such a beautiful movie, even with even considering how graphic and gruesome it is. So I love this film. I would say it's very quickly made its way to the top of of uh, of, of the sort of under, to the top echelon of you know the, his films, like together with yes. like Blowout and Body Double. Uh, I I really appreciate this film with its flaws because it has a few, but. Holy shit! This movie is just entertaining. It's just what you know when when Tarantino talks about making movies, and he's just like, "This is a movie," you know. This is, so you know this doesn't take place in any tangible reality. This is taking place in the sort of imagined universe that Brandon Palmer conjured for me, and it rocks, and it and it just cooks on all cylinders. It's just amazing, and it's extremely brave, ext- extreme, well, extremely graphic and gruesome, and very provocative and i like that sort of balls out filmmaking because you don't get to see it very often these days especially and and if you do get to see it then also kind of just follows with a shitstorm on twitter and i think if this film was made today it would be followed with a shitstorm on twitter as well um so so there so there is that which i think we'll get to but mm-hmm. but yeah so this is where i think we're all kind of standing in the same sort of place on this film like we're all fans of this of, of this experience so i think it it's almost difficult to kind of just to, to start talking about this about the film because it was critically acclaimed at the time 
if I if, if if I understand the sort of the landscape at the time, I think it was critically acclaimed, though people didn't turn out for it because it was I think just on the basis of the rating. Although I think Randy, because you you have you have insights to you have the sort of spidey sense, like you're like Jennifer Connolly just speaking to to, to insects. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you 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 may be able to kind of offer a few a few nuggets of your wisdom as to as to why this why people did not really turn out for it the way they probably could have, but but maybe it's it's better to kind of just we like ring this all back around to to the Palmer's childhood and and start talking about this way because I I'm watching this and I feel like this is a very personal film for him because all of his films are sort of very voyeuristic in nature and they all kind of just you could see that they're. They're they're all in a way rear window knockoffs in some respect, mm. but yep. this is but but this comes from his personal experience having been asked by his mum to shadow his dad who was having a an extramarital affair that apparently Nicolo knows quite a few things about. So maybe just let's just talk about this sort of connection first. How about that? Sure, it's 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 fascinating <laughs> in its own way. The De Palma, especially after I watched the documentary The Palma mm-hmm. by Noah Baumbach, it's interesting to see just how much of his own personal life has informed the movies that he's made. And in a weird way, this might be the most personal in terms of how much of himself he put into it because the Keith Gordon character is him because he mm-hmm. was a science nerd. He yeah. was making all those things when he was young and he had a very complicated relationship with his parents, uh, very attached to his mother uh, and very detached from his father. And so what happened in real life was, just to make it very brief, which is what everyone knows pretty much by now, is that his father was constantly cheating on his wife and she was understandably so very upset about this and she just needed proof it's kind of like i know it's happening but just bring me proof and so she sent her son to just go spy on him and take photographs which is pure voyeurism and so just imagine that you're you're a 15 year old whatever just following your dad around taking pictures of him going out with random ladies and going back to their apartments and then you're also going to the cinema watching Vertigo and other very twisted thrillers for the time. It's understandable that he ended up making movies like like Dress to Kill. Um, it, it's a fun piece of connection, I think. Just how art informs life and like they mirror each other in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And there's there's another there's a theme that seems to um, sort of come up in. Uh, De Palma's films and that's around sex. Any seemingly non-healthy sexual relationship uh, in De Palma's world of cinema uh, leads to consequences. So, you know, there's the whole repressed sexuality in Carrie Mm. and you've got affairs um, in Blowout and uh, here you've got the the whole uh, DID and split personality um, thing that you know the a, a trigger of being aroused so it's it's almost as if the his attitude has been somewhat informed by these experiences maybe for like the trickle down effect from how his uh how his parents relationships from the, the, his father's uh extramarital affairs um you know affected his family unit um you know that's maybe i'm reading in but uh it, there's there's certainly a thread in a good number of his of his films about um 
sex usually isn't normal and it's it usually comes with uh, negative consequences for someone and uh, you know we certainly see that here in dress to kill as well i mean that's an interesting wrinkle actually <clears throat> if you think about this what you're just saying that sort of sex in his films always leads to consequences like there is no i can't i, I can't think of just a sex scene where just two people romantically involved will be expressing their um their their sort of emotions for one another in a in a physical way it always feels dirty it feels lurid right and and, and in in a way actually nudity in his films kind of feels like you're you feel like norman bates <laughs> mm. you know in like you're, you're you're like you feel like a peeping tom every single time someone's naked on the screen and it's I, well, I, I I could only postulate that this is purposeful. Like this is not an incident. That this is this is something that is baked into these films, and then especially when you think about the character of Keith Gordon's, whom I adore because he's my favorite. One of my favorite things about Christine, <laughs> one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. Um, but if and you think about all that this, jazz, he's in all that jazz too. He is. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah. Subscribe to our Patreon. So, yeah, <laughs> so, so, all I'm gonna say. But well, what I when I first saw, like, okay, well, I did. I didn't walk into this film. I mean, I only knew 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 the sort of main twist because I watched the documentary and it's kind of just laid out in there. So that's just it. But I don't. I don't watch movies for the plot. So I, it's not like oh, I can't watch it now because someone told me that Michael Caine's the killer. Oh, it's ruined. <laughs> So, spoilers um so what what i will say is i walked into it and i'm i didn't quite know what to expect and the minute i saw this the, okay well the, the film opens with this absolutely massively long dream sequence with angie dickinson taking a shower and then with a body double mind you as well which, <laughs> when you think about what Body Double is as well, and as a scene at the end of Body Double actually has 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 a scene that kind of probably was exactly <laughs> lifted from how Dress to Kill was shot, right? Uh, only without people wearing vampire makeup. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and then it kind of just transports you into this sort of weird sort of lab of her of her sons. And that looks like you know, like an opening to Gremlins, with <laughs> this sort of in, in you know inventor just in smoke free, smoke free you know uh, uh, ashtrays and shit like this. And then I realize, like, what is this? What is this doing here? Why? Why is it? Why am I looking at this sort of weird lab of some teenage nerd? And I'm just realizing, of course. This movie, this movie is about Brand De Palma, and then on some level, you could say that all of them they are kind of on this way. But I think this is most explicitly a f- film that's processing the shit he's gone through. Yeah, well, De Palma had uh, conversations with his mom about, you know, she would say, "You, you can't be doing all nighters; you got to get your sleep." And this is this conversation that he has, and that that scene really is is meant to sort of establish the the son and the, the connection and with his with his mom and that they're close um and just the nature of their family unit that's really what that scene is about but De Palma so it's said not about that, her not knowing where napoleon comes from 
Because <laughs> no. exactly. like a quick that's... Google search will tell you it's not being invented by Napoleon. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's secondary or tertiary. Uh, but that is a scene that De Palma's on the record is saying, you know, no, that's just straight up out of my high school years because I would do that type of thing. Like he was a, you know, he was a science fair type of guy. And, you know, so that machine was modeled after pictures that De Palma gave the art crew, like make something like I used to make. So it's, yeah, that's straight up De Palma writing De Palma for Keith Gordon to act. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then, then if you think about it, if this is if this is in in fact an extremely personal piece of storytelling for him, then it actually begs a question. Okay, well, what does what lengths does he have to go to to actually okay to process this grief and how this grief is directed? Because when you think about this, he the Kate or Angie Dickinson's character, she has these sort of rape fantasies. Then she goes to the museum. And I, well, correct me if I'm wrong. The the guy she's having sex with in the in the in the shower, that's the same actor who then she meets in the in the in, in the museum, right? I don't actually know. I maybe because it kind of looked familiar, and I'm just wondering. Okay, well, so I'm trying to process. So she goes to museum, to museums to cruise, right? But then to me, then she she goes to look for this man whom she's seen before. To find him and then event and hook up with him because she's never had the courage to do this. And then, as she actually works up the car- courage to do this, she then finds out she she's sold her gonorrhea, and she gets murdered in a in an elevator just immediately thereafter, which seems like almost like a biblical vengeance. Like this is <laughs> this is almost like very sort of very spiteful retribution. On the be- on behalf of the storyteller, who's effectively God in this scenario, because he decides wh- who lives and who dies, and I'm just and I'm wondering whether there is any depth, depth, <laughs> to that sort of angle. Well, it's something even just looking at the Palmer's career and what you said, Randy, earlier. There is something where uh, it's it's kind of like I want to say is not trying to move forward certain, I don't know, conservative ideas of like of like the slasher cliches. You shouldn't have sex, you shouldn't have those desires because they're harmful. Because in a way, it is it feels less like a misogynist, which is how some people see these movies, they see it as misogynist, but I think it's less about this being a misogynist way of saying women should be faithful and stay with their husbands and they shouldn't have those dreams because see, you're gonna get your just desserts. No, I, I, I think it's meant to be more about just the reality, unfortunate reality of the situation where those things are condemned not so much by... But, but there's a society, just it's the world that's cruel, that's violent, that abuses and destroys women primarily, which is also nicely contrasted when you have this psycho switcheroo when then you start following Nancy Allen, who is an escort, who, is, who does the opposite pretty much of what Angie Dickinson is. Angie Dickinson is a devoted housewife who just makes mm-hmm. one slip up because she's just depressed and she has to go to a psychiatrist and she's not loving her life. And meanwhile, you have, you have Nancy Allen who's actually doing that as a job, just constantly mm-hmm. going out with people to sleep with them, high-paying clients as well. Uh, her and, words that she's done everything that you possibly could think of, right? Yes. And like, and, <clears throat> and she feels no shame or remorse, as she shouldn't. So it it is 
I think that's what makes it different from something like a cycle or from mm-hmm. something like other slashers because it is very progressive in that sense. They're two... Uh, they're, they're almost like two people from two different eras because one is like 40 plus year old, the other is 20 something. It's the past and the, and the future. It's something that has to die in order for the other to live. I don't know. You can look at it in very different ways, but I do think it is very, like you said, Jakub, it's very brave. Mm-hmm. And it is, I think the fact that compared to other movies that the Palm has made or other filmmakers, this one is beloved, shows that even just deep inside, even if people and viewers don't realize it, they do understand that it's not an inherently misogynistic film. Mm-hmm. I would agree that it's not inherently misogynistic. I'll, I'll like that read on it, I think, is com- completely surface level because at, at the end of the day, he's got two very strong uh, women characters. Like mm. I, I would argue that Angie Dickinson is a fairly strong character. Like you know, she is doing what she wants to do, and she's making her own choices, and she's in a bad position. And yes, bad things happen to her, but she's she's making her own choices. Some are good, some are bad. She's seeking help. Like she's going to a therapist and like, that's something that she's doing for herself, taking care of herself. She's, um, you know, involved and has a good relationship with her son. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she is acting on this urge that she wants to, she wants some level of sexual freedom because, you know, she hates her current situation with her current husband. So, you know, she, she's acting on that. She's making her own choices. I think there's an argument in there that she's a very uh, strong character. Um, and similarly, Nancy Allen is a, a very interesting uh, character because she's not a traditional uh, hooker in any way, you know, despite what the detective says to her and about her. Um, she is high-end. She's got a lovely apartment. And she's using her clients for stock tips because there's this great bit where just as the elevators opening her client sees the body and runs away well he's explaining to her you know this inside stock tip and then mm-hmm. a couple scenes later she's on uh, the phone she's on the phone and it's easy to miss because it's it's, it's part of split that screen that split screen shot but she's calling her uh she's calling her stockbroker and saying i think i want this uh i think i want this uh stock and she has another phone on the go where she's you know She's trying to set up her next job so she can, you know, have the liquid assets to, so you know, she's purchase it. She's speaking to her pimp. Yeah. As well. <laughs> so, but but she's in complete yeah. control, and I, you know, I think they're two great characters. And on on the surface, is it's easy to see them as sexual objects, but and 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 also you can, it's easy to see them as you know being victimized. But I think that's where De Palma is taking story models that he's familiar with and seen and in this case I, th- I think that that's where that's the psycho influence let's let's structure something similar to psycho where we've got one character and then we switch gears and we totally follow a new protagonist uh, and he's jamming all that in um so yeah I, I i think that he just wants to make these types of genre films and mm-hmm. they're particularly nasty and nine times out of ten the victims are women um but i think that he's sort of a strong advocate for the the women in his films it's almost like lars von trier i mean you could argue that nancy allen i mean there's there's an interesting time before that i'll just have to say i need to rework my top three 
because I totally forgot about the split screen sequence where I'm struggling to focus because there's two things happening at the same time. There's this interview with this transgender uh, person mm-hmm. that Michael Caine's watching, and then he's what and they're they're both have have the TV on at the same time while they're doing other things, and then Michael Caine's also in a like you can see the TV, you can see his reflection in the mirror, and there's the split screen, which is which is a soft split as well, and I'm just I spent a minute and a half just uh, just adoring this <laughs> this this setup. Yeah, and it, and I, and I almost did, did what what basically De Palma wants me to do every single time he splits the screen because he, when he splits the diop he uses a split diopter he wants you to take in everything he wants to take you he alerts you to the possibility there are two things you need to pay attention to when he splits the screen he wants you to forget shit like he wants you to miss stuff because you'll be just too engrossed in the sort of for instance in the in Michael Caine watching this sort of documentary about um, this person who's um, being interviewed in, in a very sort of earnest and in an in a, in awkward way. By, I can't remember if it's Johnny Carson or someone like that. It's, it's Phil Donahue. Or Phil Donahue. Mm, and then, yeah. and at the same time, Nancy Allen's making a phone call that's ultimately, well, it's a, it's a very interesting character trait of hers that kind of leads you to believe that she's a bona fide hero in here, that she's in control. And, um, to label this film misogynistic or just De Palma misogynistic and for that matter is as I totally agree it's totally surf- surface level it's so super superficial yeah. it's very sort of per clutching um criticism if you know what I mean just like w- people who kind of do this I always imagine that they have a special f- sofa in their house to faint on right um it's, <laughs> it's just what it's just what it is but you when you when you compare these two characters of so Angie Dickinson who's a repressed person who really hates her life and tries to do something about so she make she makes decisions she's, she's deciding to to do something about what she's doing and she gets punished for it uh where while Nancy Allen is in, in is who effectively solves the crime solves the mystery right even though she's for half of it she's almost she's almost a damsel in distress and this is, a, I think, this is what De Palma also does. He kind of convinces you that these women are damsels in distress when they, in fact, they're not. They're either femme fatales, and they're or or they're in effective her- heroes of sto- of his stories. And I find that fascinating. And then just to just continue on the sort of violence argue when you, argument when you think about just violence in general in films, why is this always that women get get the knife in the back and not men? Well. I think it's just human psychology that's just men tend to be aggressive and violent and women just do other things in most of the time. So it, when when you see there is a, there's just an imbalance in society that men are more violent towards women in a physical manner than the other way around. That's just what it is. So I think that's also just an expression of this. And I, I totally agree that I think just the just wants to make movies that he likes. And then he just happened to grow up watching watching the shit that he did. And he's just manifesting these things that way in a very sort of sleazy and upfront manner. And I'm here for it, baby. I mean, <laughs> I'm here yeah. for it. So, yeah. Well, De Palma's had a good quote in an interview I saw. He said, you know, like, I, I get sick and tired of having to go to these panels and people keep asking this thing. But at the end of the day, when it comes to the damsel in distress, that's just a piece that's part and parcel with the genre. And ultimately, it's way more uh, impactful 
if you have a woman at risk than if you have Rambo at risk. So and that's, <laughs> you know, and, and there's, there's truth in that, right? Like from a storytelling standpoint, like that's true. Well, yeah. I mean, because like, you, you, I don't know. I, I feel more connected to a character when the character is vulnerable, right? Because, uh, well, maybe, okay, well, maybe First Blood is probably not a good example because John Rambo in there is kind of vulnerable. But when you, when you think about sort of the sort of the, when, when, when you deal with an action hero, I don't know, Rambo 3, someone like, yeah, no, he's getting, he's getting tortured. I don't care. He's going to be fine. That's just the uh, underlying assumption. But yeah, Yeah. he, he, he does that in a brilliant way in here. And, uh, yeah, and, (laughs) And we haven't even touched on that. We haven't even talked about Michael Caine in here, which I, I, I find he's just a wonderful person. I mean, there's there's a few wrinkle, there's a bunch of wrinkles to his character, but I kind of just, his presence is just gen- genuinely interesting. And I'm, I'm just wondering, because for you guys, this was your, I don't know, second, second third time watching this. And, well, I had this twist spoiled for me. But I'm just trying to watch it with kind of the assumption of being 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 not being in on the joke or on the on the on the twist. Is it is it difficult to figure out what's going on or is it not? Uh, Personally, as someone who didn't know the twist going into it, I figured it out relatively early on. Not so much for the psycho connection, to be honest. Weirdly enough, I didn't even think about Psycho the first time around watching this. Even with the museum sequence, and just and then ram ram effectively this woman being taken out of the picture exactly thirty minutes in just the same way Janet Lee is taken out. On, only instead yes. of in the shower, she's taken out in the elevator, and then oh, he, again he just do, does what Hitchcock couldn't do, which is just showing you all the violence that Selznick would have said no to. Yes, yeah. even with those, even with that, I, I think that that's just a testament to the film itself. That it manages compared to other the Palma film, it manages to, outside of the opening shower scene where it's kind of like, well, of course, shower cycle, but everything else, I think it's it's less referential to some of his other movies, um, or at least it's more successful in feeling like its own beast. But I figured it out primarily, and that's kind of just a, a byproduct of making mysteries like this. It's a limited cast. Is trying to avoid showing. Oh yeah, it's just kind of like what's like the it gonna be? It's gonna conference. be the kid. It's gonna it's be Keith like, Gordon. It's gonna be someone that you've seen already, right? It's gonna be someone that you've seen already. He's using this. All, this is usually the most Jalo movie that he ever made because of like the I am the killer and I have this weird, slightly high pitched voice whispering. It's William Finley, by the way, on the phone. Which is William you know Finley, it. yes, yes, <laughs> that's right. The Phantom himself, um, and he lends just... his voice—the voice he did not have. <laughs> yes, and and you have this constant mo- actually. <laughs> oh, 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 just shifting it, um, and you have this constant just uh, motives of motives of mirrors whenever Michael Caine is around. It's just someone says something, he just looks at himself in the mirror, like oh. And so I was like, okay, there, something's up with him. And then I thought, it's probably like split personality or something like that. And that's when just everything's leading up to, oh, Bobby left his apartment. He goes to the doctor and he's talking about Bobby and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I don't want to say it's predictable per se. But even though I figured out early on where it was going to go, I still enjoyed the ride because it's worth it. And it didn't take me out in any way. 
I, I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, it's smarter than the movie. Film's horrible if I figure yeah. it out. It's like, no, it just happens sometimes. You see a lot of movies, you figure this out. I wonder if when this opened, it was a little bit, uh, you know, more of a, a shock at, at the end. Um, you know, I, there's been a lot of content viewed by the last, you know, couple generations. So, uh, and then you had in the 90s, like a, a wave of, you know, twist ending type of uh, deals. Uh, so I wonder if it's a little bit easier to see it now and, and sort of forecast that. And there's something very odd looking about uh, the, the Bobby character where when Elliot is dressed up. And I only realized not all that long ago that that is uh, not Michael Caine in the, uh, as the, the woman in blonde but it's a she's very odd looking that Susanna Clem when she's in that that makeup and I didn't quite make connections the first couple times I saw it that there was this the second the second who she was like I know they explain it but it's uh, she's the uh, police officer spying on Nancy Allen right but it's it's sort of a weird like when you when you see it you just connect it with the killer and like I know there's a few shots where you know you see one and then the next shot you see the other but it's uh I don't know there, there's something about that that's not uh you know fleshed out and it's a little bit too coincidental or something but um to the Michael Caine thing I I think it might be easier to see that there's some sort of uh there's there's some sort of twist and it, it's probably fairly uh easy to predict for a, a modern audience but again too that's not what the, the journey is, is strictly about right that's just the, yes. the punctuation point that comes close to the end of the the movie but it's not even a full stop right it's more of a semicolon because then there's more after that but uh yeah it's yeah it's 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 fun to watch this in sort of a twisted way because you're at the mercy of de palma and his storytelling like he's just in, in this film in particular and, and blow it and a couple of his other, you know, high end ones, like he has this visual craft happening where he sucks you into this world. Like you were saying, Jacob, like it's this, well, it's this De Palma world and he, he, he plays with time in a weird way. So when, when I say he slows things down, like that's not a pacing issue. He, his pacing. That's a tension of his, issue. A, yeah, Absolutely. <clears throat> But what he does is like he he slows down time and I'm trying to think there's not a whole lot of slow motion in here. But what he will do is he will show the same two seconds of something from two different perspectives. So all of a sudden mm-hmm. that's four seconds and just he elongates these scenes with, you know, the cutaways and his coverage of scenes is just uh, immaculate. And in, yeah. this film doesn't really feel like. 100 minute film or whatever it is like it feels like it's an hour because mm-hmm. there are a number of these scenes that are 10 minute scenes whereas in another film that is doing something similar with its structure they they might be half the length like he is just elongating this mm-hmm. masterfully and he's filling a lot of the space with that beautiful score too like pino Dinaggio needs a shout out here because this is a like he's got two or three fantastic scores that he's done for De Palma. This is, this is one of them. And uh, like that, a lot of that slowness and a lot of that space is, is really filled out by uh, the sweeping use of music. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's something I find that De Palma does. Like he just, 
he he crafts this where he is he's stretching things out he's making uh simple scenes into complex ones yes. um, another another example like a scene that i really like is at the the police station where you can't really tell like who's the boss of this scene like whose character is the centerpiece here because everyone's got their strong moment in it and just when you're zeroing in on someone explaining what they've seen well you've got the split focus shot so you're also saying well okay what's her story back there because she's in full focus just in the other room um so it's it's sort of unsettling he he has all these tricks to make you feel that something weird is going on you know like that is a fairly in the script that must read as a fairly normal looking scene in the police station Mm -hmm. but it is so dynamic with people coming and going with uh the 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 split uh i guess it's not the the split diopters and Mm -hmm. uh you know the 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 close-ups of the the earpiece and the spying like it's relatively simple on the page but it is so complex and it's hard as a viewer to settle into that like are we following the investigation now because we just got rid of the main character are we settling in on the the witness nancy allen are we settling in on the kid you just don't really know what's going on in fact i think the the maid who screamed at in the elevator she's in the scene too like because she was being Mm -hmm. interviewed so she walks by so you don't really know who to gravitate to and it's uh it's it's a fantastic moment like i i really like that scene which in another film would be very simple but this is very complex that's just one of the beauties of the palma is that he knows that those scenes can be freaking boring and so he says well i'm gonna try to make them as interesting as possible at least on a visual level and it works i'd say almost every time um just to kill especially like you're right it has in my book, it probably has the best pacing out of any of his films. Outside of, 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 of up, one thing, that we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it, but but it it just moves so so well, especially because you have the like. I remember the first time around watching it when you get to Angie Dickinson dying. I was like, she's dying already. It's kind of like we're, we've been ten minutes in this movie, and it's like, oh no, it's been like over half an hour now. Yeah. <laughs> just you get lost in it. And that's something that that reminds me of what my professor told me. It's just you have to learn to indulge in time, because there's always this thing of like time is money. Uh, you you don't have to waste audiences' time with things. It's like no one wants to watch some boring movie or whatever. There's always has to be something going on, and it's like no, you you should learn to slow things down. And that's always when the Palma works when he slows mm-hmm. things down, especially when he removes dialogue. Which is not only the museum scene, but I, I I think about the subway scene. I think it's excellent. We have this beautiful long pan, just tracking shot in in, this, in, this, in the train car is just going left. Oh, with the uh, face right. in the window, and then on the yeah. pan back is it's, it's gone. It's, and it's gone. It's like whoa. Yeah. And the geography is always clear. Like the Palma is never going to make a movie where you go, I I don't know where we are. <laughs> You're right. always aware of the room. The directorial meticulousness is something that he absolutely picked up from from Alfred Hitchcock. Like you can't you can't yes. w- go around like waltz around this too much, right? And talent, just sheer talent. Honestly. Yes, but he had his his eye for the. I mean, 
he he tends to kind of go a little bit overboard in certain respects in here, especially with the use of like we talked about Blowout, and I I see Blowout as sort of his flashiest film. Uh, in here, he kind of just commits to these gimmicks a little bit too much, almost. <laughs> I see that they're they're done on a for for a purpose, and in this sort of police. Uh, station scene. Uh, eventually, I stop paying attention to them. I just, I just resign myself to the idea of I'm need, I'm, I'm following four characters at a time because mm-hmm. well, four, three, because uh, Michael Caine's character comes in. No, no, there's Michael Caine. There's the, uh, there's the, there's the um, uh, police officer. Police officer. Yeah, there's Nancy Allen in the corner, and there's and, and there's Arnie Keith Cunningham Martin. from Christine, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's just all four of them I have to pay attention to. And just then eavesdropping yeah. with that that ridiculous gadget, just keeping it in his pocket at all times. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> How many and times just... do you do it, kid? Although he, in a scene towards the end, for instance, like this sort of the, the technicalities kind of just get into the way of things because I th- I feel like there's the, the, when they have a conversation in the restaurant and then you see the short reverse shot is in two split diopters. And I can see one part of it being kind of just like because there's this disgusted woman in the background just hearing uh, hearing about penectomy and shit like this, and she's just oh. But then there's other couple in the background who just pays no attention to them, and they're just younger, and just like I suppose he's making a making a comment in here, or is he not? Because it yeah, it could have been just directed a bit different Uh, from from my money. But I'll. In terms of like slowing, uh, yes, he. I think he slows down time where where it's needed, and now I'm like when when you see the sort of the elevator scene, which is effectively the shower scene in Psycho, which I had I can't remember how many edits, how 187 edits it had, in or or something like that. Mm-hmm. He, you know, 72 cuts in 40 seconds or something like that. It's it's just it's it's just a weird weird exercise in style. And in here, he relishes in the tension because he takes quite a few seconds before you see Angie Dickinson actually re- receiving a cut to her face. Mm-hmm. And you know it's coming because you see the razor blade, right? And then sim- similarly, when Nancy Allen, there's this sort of scene that almost just annoys you where Nancy Allen's kneeling down because Angie Dickinson's just extending her hand towards it as a, in a gesture of, please help me, this, I'm going to die in here. And then she's trying to, and then, and then she notices the killer's reflection in, uh, in I think it's in, I can't call it a mirror, in in the in the sort of this, this sort of aluminum wall or I don't know. Yeah. And then it takes forever for the for the razor blade to drop, and then you feel infuriated because you're almost conditioned to experience these things in a more rapid succession of shots, as in like this is more. Uh, economical usually and he takes his time and he just and he shows you everything he shows you how he splits her up um, you know up the, you know like goes goes from like i think bottoms up almost like and you, you see the cut to her face cut to her neck and it almost feels like he's trying to show dario argento how shit's done <laughs> <laughs> like because I'm, I'm watching this and i'm effectively thinking about you know the whole film. Like I have these sort of flashbacks to watching Deep Red, and then yes. you see you see Keith Gordon's kind of like the David Hemmings, and then Nancy Allen is effectively Daria Nicolodi's character, and, and you can see these parallels. And then it's just done with such style that Daria Argento never either cared about or had the uh, faculties or cap- cap- financial capability to kind of just uh, 
you know, reduced to practice. And I told, yeah, I, I agree that there's the, like the, the scene towards the end where you see Keith Gordon uh, behind the window and then there's Michael Caine approaching from behind. It takes forever. Same for the shower scene in the in, in the very end. It takes like five minutes for her to exit the shower. You, you almost feel like I'm, like I'm feeling like this is uh, like the hateful eight sort of situation where this this sort of the, the rubber band of suspense is just stretched to the absolute maximum and he he does it knowingly because he doesn't he knows that the uh, release is going to be <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't want you to 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 exit the film with 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 a sort of feeling of cathartic release he wants you to kind of exit unsettled and kind of does but yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's when where the psycho connection comes in as well. Because if you think about it, both movies don't have that many scenes. Mm-hmm. It's it's like if you think, especially when you look back at them, it's kind of like those are not long movies per se, and they are well, they're not eighty minutes long. They're around like an hour forty-five, an hour fifty each. But you're just watching them, and they move so well because it's. I think that's something, especially after having watched a lot of slow cinema over the past couple of years, I think the more you slow down a scene, the the more natural it feels and the quicker it goes by. It depends is, how you slow it down though, right? Yes, but it's something <clears> like, if, like you could watch one of those, I don't know, two and a half hour Marvel movie that has a scene every 90 seconds or something. It's like, and we're in Rome and we're in London and we're in Paris and things always happening and people are telling jokes and it just keeps moving, but you're just exhausted. And I'm, I'm, and I'm watching just uh, Dress to Kill thinking, wow, like, yes, another director, another Argento, honestly, it would have had uh, Angie Dickinson, Enters the elevator, door is closing. Boom, K- killer's hand. Slash, slash, slash. And Goblin the- going insane with soundtrack. Close. <laughs> 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 close up of the knife going through the mouth, and then. Or like every single time, Keith Gordon's just setting up his bike. You just have. <laughs> just in the background pretty much pretty much and it's again it it can still work yeah. it can be fun all of that yeah. but you you're watching this film especially on a rewatch you know where it's coming it's kind of like there's the little girl and then she goes on and it's like ah oh, fuck the glove she forgot the glove again or no, was it the, the, the wedding the ring. ring sorry it's the wedding the ring. ring yeah she forgot it's, the wedding ring she, she remembered again. about her husband and that's what got her killed she that's, could she oh. could have come home without the ring <laughs> it's everything Every just yes it's so again like you both said it's so frustrating and the way it's stretching the tension i'm just in it and i'm not feeling the time i'm just in the flow of everything and that's that's kind of what makes me want to say yeah, yeah. part of me wants to say that like half of this movie is my favorite brian de palma movie oh half of it <laughs> Which because half? it goes uh, the, the first half. <laughs> I really, I, I want to say, like everything up until uh, let's just say when you understand where the movie is going to end up. Mm-hmm. Like the whole Nancy Allen in Michael Caine's office, I think that's not when the movie becomes worse, but that's just when it's not as great as everything that came beforehand. Everything that came beforehand, I, it's, it's like ten out of ten. Loving it, loving the style, performances, dialogue, everything. 
and that, that and it's after that that it kind of loses me because it's we can can we talk about the ending? Yeah, I mean, because that's just <laughs> what I wanted to say. Well, there's there's the the, the hospital scene where uh... Michael Caine just kills a nurse. What yeah. the fuck? <laughs> okay um so psycho is hated usually because it's like oh well it's a great movie but it has the doctor where he explains everything oh, you about want to just norman d- bates and it's all the backstory we don't need that and of course there's Brad like 15 Palmer. minutes of this here <laughs> even more like it feels that's when the pacing just dies for me because it's the movie's over we talked about deep red I said this about Argento, like when the when the story is finished in an Argento film, it just it's literally just cuts credits. Killer's dead. Axe to the face. <laughs> Daria Nicolodi screaming. Roll credits. You don't you don't <laughs> need the last fifteen minutes of this film because it makes no sense. It's 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 him kind of repeating Carrie only longer. Why why do we need to see like you have the explanation from the doctor? Okay, you have Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon talking about it like they're experts now about like transgender identity and just sex change operations. Fine. It and feels like you... it's a mandated for, by the studio sort of situation. It's like we kind of need to do this because it kind of looks guess. like all these transgender people are just sex perverts, right? It was just yeah, <laughs> it's, Maybe, it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. And... It kind of feels very unnatural in there. It's... The the restaurant scene is to me the one that could go. I I yes. don't mind. I don't mind the dream because it is, like you say, Nicola, I, th- I think it is just, it's a simple reach back to, oh, that works so well in Carrie. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, I, no. with the sort of hand going I, through the, yeah. right. Yeah. So I mean, he might be saying to himself, look, I, I took the, what should have been a, a two minute flirtation in the art gallery and I extended it to nine minutes. So why don't I take a 30 second uh, scene at, at the end that I had at Carrie and I'll, I'll extend it to four minutes. Um, but I think that's, that's the idea is, is to do what he did with Carrie, right? Like mm-hmm. have that shocking ending and uh, like this, and this whole film is about elongation. So that's sort of drawn out as, as well. But on, on the point, I think yeah. I, I do agree, though, that the if that is that denouement, 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 if anything can go, it's it's probably the, the scene in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Even though I do like the comedy there with the lady <laughs> the, at the next table. I, I sort of like that, but it doesn't necessarily have I mean, an overall place. It feels like place. it's just social commentary. Just put it there. Put in there. Just I don't know if it's for shits and giggles or just for. We kind of just, or maybe someone's realized, or maybe the Palma himself realized, well, you know, maybe we need to kind of just do better than just homage uh, Psycho with, with the doctor explaining blatantly what's happened. Just, oh, the guy got a boner and then Bobby took over, right? Or just so. <laughs> Which is honestly so messy in the way it's explained. Mm-hmm. Because I remember the first time around, I, I didn't think too much about it. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. I was just re-listening to the Bobby explanation. It's so weird because they uh, because they say is a uh, uh, this is slippery slope here. It's a slippery slope. Well, because they use the term transsexual, but he's not. Mm-hmm. Was he transitioning? Did he uh, already? He trans- was, it, like, based on the conversation he in, or well, Michael Caine had with the doctor on the stair on on the stairs. Yes. Yeah, he tried, but he was denied. Yes. 
but, uh, right? but he has a. Uh, they also yeah. say that he has a wife, but you never see that character. Well, he also says that he's not. He he's a psychiatrist, and then he has a former patient who keeps who's who keeps leaving messages, and that's William Finley, right? Uh, so he's clearly lying, <laughs> lying, guess, and yeah. or he's dissociated as well, right? So he he doesn't well, even know what he's saying when the other personality takes over, right? That's yeah. how I take it. Mm. I think that's, that's yeah. the only uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, even they just kind of clumsily explained is that it's very, very easy, even with all of the explaining, it's very, very easy to see it as kind of like <laughs> transsexual identity is there's two people inside of you just battling it out. <laughs> it depends on who's going to fight it out and duke it out. Um I think I like I don't have a problem with the with the twist and all of that because I mean it's just it's movies it's cinema it's it's and unfortunately well fortunately unfortunately whatever it's not something that touches me personally and I know there there's people who uh, transgender individuals who do also like the movie of course you can you can do both you can movie. enjoy the movie because it's a movie but it is. Uh... It is also undeniable that the way these characters are portrayed in popular media, at least for quite a few years, it was primarily like deranged villains with psychotic tendencies, and it does. And I always think like, okay, even if where's you the have cannibal like... movement just trying to cancel like, Silence in the, of the Lambs? Okay. Yeah, I was, I was just gonna say like, even in in uh, I don't remember if it's in the movie. But I remember in the book, Thomas Harris has a scene that's set in like um, an inst- or a sex change. Clinic, in the, whatever it is. In the film, in the film, he has a he has a conversation with Jodie Foster saying that he he must have been a transsexual who was denied a sex change operation. So that's he's kind of just um, dissociated from there because he he I don't know he 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 this not discombo he basically decomposed in in internally into what essentially became a monster who has a hole in his house where he keeps a, where he keeps a young young lady with a with a fucking dog yeah which again and, and, and in the book I've, there's a whole like conversation with a doctor about it and it's kind mm-hmm. of like to show you like it's not that all transsexuals are killers and deranged psychopaths it's only the fictional character in the book who's a serial killer it's fine i think what works about dress to kill to me even though it's not like it's not super progressive, but whatever, I can take it or leave it. Is the scene that you talked about with the split screen and the transgender woman on television mm-hmm. that's doing the interview? Because that's that it feels both very dated and very ahead of its time. Well, for because its time, it was ahead of its time. Now it's kind of, it kind of feels a little bit cute, right? It's a great time capsule. Mm-hmm. Cap caps cap capsule. <laughs> time yeah. capsule. Because you're watching it now and that wouldn't fly nowadays. Like if someone if if a TV host made those kinds of comments to any transgender individual, it's kinda of like, Well, but 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 you enjoyed like basically having sex because you had children, like you'd love being a father and having this role. And even then, the way he says it, he is trying to be very tactful. And it's just fascinating to see basically kind of a small documentary portion of the movie mm-hmm. working as this relic it, it, of its yeah, time. Yeah, it is, it is the way that it was. Like, when when you go back, it's it's around the 90s when uh, the culture started, I feel, mm-hmm. to become a little bit more, uh, you know, 
woke and clued in to the nuances of things. There was sort of a baseline for normal that was portrayed in entertainment in you know North North America. I'll I'll say and the sort West. of a baseline. Of the, the West, West. <laughs> yeah, the so bloody West. And anything <clears throat> that was below normal, you can go ahead and vilify, right? So you know basically. If you were white middle class and straight and probably male, you know, you, you've you got this entertainment machine that is sort of serving you. And anything that was perceived as abnormal, any trait that was considered, uh, you know, a little different, um, wasn't really understood by the mainstream. And, you know, I'm a little older than you guys, so I'm, I'm just learning and cluing into some of these things now but there's no question that dress to kill would not look the way that it does if it were made today because mm-hmm. there's you know there's certainly problematic elements to you know to suggest well just because someone is getting turned on one other personalities is getting you know turned on then you know <laughs> they're going to be a but killer. This is, this is a There's... movie conceit, right? That's all it is. It's a plot device. Yeah. Oh, it's right? borderline science yeah. fiction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, but that is, it is to say though, that, uh, you know, there are problematic elements here, uh, you know, throughout, like even the, the punks that are on the, uh, the train platform, yeah. you know, that those would not be cast that way. Those would not be acted that way uh, uh, today. So you can, you can always find these little, you know faults and these dated elements and it sort of speaks to certain norms of the day and you know in a lot of ways we're you know improving and we're far removed from from those days um but you know still dress to kill is an output from from that generation and it's it's interesting looking back but yeah within this film world you know it it, it all works Mm -hmm. but you know, but but still, there there's certainly pieces that now someone looking back can have all kinds of problems with it, and you know it's hard to uh, dispute them in a certain way, except that you know the film existed in a, a a bubble of of its day. With with that sort of reading, as in well, because it it has it kind of invites this sort of reading of well, I suppose your the problematic reading of this would be like suppose uh, people as they're referred in the film transsexuals are just you know deranged sex perverts who only think about killing i mean this is an x-rated film this is first and foremost it is an x-rated genre film it's, it's aimed at mature audiences and that to me has not never meant you have to be 18 to watch it no you have to be mature to watch it so if you if if someone walks into film that's that supposedly just perpetu- perpetuates certain um, stereotypes, or makes use of, or make, makes use of certain 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 things that may be con- misconstrued as stereo- as hurtful stereotypes, and then it just emerges thinking like, now I hate trans people because Michael Caine was was a killer. That means you probably are not mature enough to watch this shit. If that's just end of story for me, then so because it's just a story, it's just a film. Like you know, by the same token, you know. We've been conditioned to think that, say, sociopaths are, you know, all like Patrick Bateman. All they think about is killing people and eating them on, on, on in their spare time. No, they don't. Like they run companies. <laughs> it's just, it's just. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've worked for a few. <laughs> and, Jesus. And, and, yeah, 
because that's just what it is. And, and, you know, only a small selection of these people will then end up going and cooking people in their spare time. So it's usually the unemployed ones. Because, you know, it's, I, I don't know, it, it just feels to me like I, I don't have a problem with this being because like, nowadays you, you, I, I can already see it like in like how Nicolo you're just like trying to kind of just be very uh, you know how do I talk about this because nowadays it's not, well like to me the, the time capsule element is almost almost an indictment of our times in a in a way because the guy was just trying to be polite in there. All he's doing, like, and, and you just feel like he's just trying to be polite, and it almost comes across as a little bit cute because he doesn't quite know what words to use. It's so hard, you can tell. It feels like it's so awkward to 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 listen to. Nowadays, it's a minefield because because the 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 back end of this is a massive backlash on social media, potential death threats you can get for just for misgendering someone. Just Christ, you know. People just need to calm down. It's just a movie. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that's that's important for just education in general. It's it's different times, like you said, Rand. It's just things change. We become more aware of certain mm-hmm. issues. We become more sensitive, and sensitive is a good word. Yes, yes, <laughs> because sensitive to them, uh, to the point where yeah, like yeah, th- this wouldn't happen nowadays. I I think the movie as a whole probably wouldn't happen. I don't think there's been many uh, transsexuals as killers movies in the past couple of years. It's um, just a twist as well, because you don't expect it to be the uh, the outcome, right? Yes, and I, I think the main problem nowadays is that it's very easy to misunderstand the movie and take it as face like well, like we well, like we all said about this film. It's very easy to take it as face value as being misogynist. You can say the same thing about some things, some movies being uh, homophobic, for instance. Um, I remember like reading uh, what's the Saint Maud mm-hmm. like reviews that says Saint Maud is homophobic. It's like where uh, what's, what's the homophobia? Like, <laughs> we've you seen clearly watched we've clearly watched different movies. <laughs> Simply because I still see Saint Maud. I, I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's it's basically one of those things where it's kind of like if a character is very insecure about their own sexuality and they have mental illnesses, and they see certain people as being demonic, doesn't mean that simply because that person is a lesbian, she's demonic. <laughs> Some shit like that. It's like this is... it doesn't mean it's an homophobic movie, and it's it's that type of it shallow tells... reading. <laughs> It kind of tells you tells me more about you as some as the critic who's just said like the Joker is racist. I'm like, well, yes, it's more telling about the the critic, not the film. Yes, but like yeah. if you if you watch Dress to Kill and <laughs> the movie finishes and you go like, fucking the Palma hates women, wants to all and of them to be dead, transphobic as fuck, super transphobic, <clears throat> doesn't just kill him, death threats. Why did this movie get made? Blah blah. blah. It's like, well, no, 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 no. Um, but again, like we, we have to acknowledge, all three of us come from a place of, of privilege, and we're not knee deep in those <laughs> in those issues. Like, so it's it's even it's easier for us to 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 make those types of comments. So it, it'd be interesting to see nowadays. Um, I, I I think I don't know. Like even even something like Sleepaway Camp, that up mm-hmm. until five years ago was demonized for its. Um, portrayal of a transsexual character is being redeemed as actually well if you think about it what happens it's 
surprisingly ahead of its time and accurate. <laughs> so who knows? Give it like another five years, maybe someone will make a very um, a trans a trans critic will make a very interesting article about dress to kill and defending it, and we're all going to look at it under different eyes, or maybe not. Oh well, probably unlikely because now people now there well there's a narrative right, so that you kind of have to just follow, and then if you kind of just st- you know don't toe the line, then the community is going to turn turn on you. Like there's there yeah, it's it's just a minefield. So. Yeah. Yeah, to kind of bring it back to bring it back to the movie itself, I, like in, as in like the the whole twist. And by the way, like the whole twist, no, not twist, but the sort the, the psycho moment in the in the film when the doctor sits down and explains blatantly what the fuck's happened, right? <laughs> if you if you watch Psycho and you even think about what nineteen sixties. Sort of state of science was at the time. It was. It was. I, I'm not sure how cutting edge it was at the time. It kind of already feels like the guys just who's explaining this to this. He's dumbing shit down for people who have no clue what they're talking about as well. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so there's this this element. So it just feels like oh, it's just very broad and very. It's not what it's like. He's no, he's not explaining this to me. He's explaining this to the mustachioed police officers who who you know. I'd, he's clearly on cocaine half the time, <laughs> <laughs> so so there's there's also that, uh, yeah. But I I feel like in general this this is an interesting twist because in a in a way this is this is a Jalo film with a small cast, so you you cannot expect someone to be the killer. And then if it, if this person came out of nowhere, it's just no, this is just a random dude you saw in a in a museum. It would be just like why? <laughs> so it it has to be someone you've seen. And it makes, I don't know, it, it it works in the context of the film. It just makes it an interesting murder mystery to me. And I, for not for one second, I, I thought just like, well, maybe there is something to it. Like, no, no one does this. Does, <laughs> like, this is this is just this is a, this is a red herring. Like watching this film with with the with, and then exiting saying this is a transphobic film is is a red herring in its own right because the film is about so much more. And then it almost disregards. Um, like the entire sort of ocean of of thematic thematic depth that's kind of just related to the Palmer's childhood as well. It's mm-hmm. just yeah, it just sells the film short. It's it's pro- it's a way of processing grief as well. Mm-hmm. Everything that Keith Gordon does, it's mm-hmm. and you can see the grief of of the 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 character. You can see the grief, the literal grief of the character losing his mother, and you can mm-hmm. use it as as the figurative grief of the palmer losing his parents for two for the price of one pretty much because you can um, i could i could honestly see that there there would be people who are, i think randy you mentioned this like oh people in the in the train station would, would be cast differently do you think do we actually think that say people who are working on this movie said to themselves to, to one another we need, we need to cast like five black extras to be the hoodlums or did they not care uh no i can see that actually <laughs> really? I, I think probably, or it's just like we need we need the police officer to be black as well. Like just like I, I at some on some on some level, I just don't care. I mean, maybe just I'm I don't really pay attention to to that kind of shit and too much. Like to me, this is just these people are just dangerous. She's running away from them. Like I don't care. Yeah, that like that's that's the point, and that's that's the read. But I but I think 
quite probably um, you had to have racialized people cast. That would have been the thinking at, at the time. Like we need uh, we need punks that create a certain amount of risk for the character. So who lives in these neighborhoods? They're going to be, uh, you know, a Latino gang or they're going to be a black mm-hmm. gang or, you know, so I think it's automatically racialized. I, I think it, within the american system like i, I think that's I mean, that's just as a definitely. byproduct of what america's like or was like at the time right it's kind of just reminds me of this conversation we had about i think gran torino at some point mm-hmm. where Car- carson was very sort of um like he had quite a few things to say about like what this sort of neighborhood hoodlums were always off color i'm just well you think well you can clearly see that white people have left this neighborhood so who else lives there so it's just you know, that's just a natural consequence of what this film is about. True, but yeah, like the the, the racial element in that sequence of, of, of dress to kill is not. Yeah, I I think it's more not problematic, but it's kind of like yeah, it's you know, it's a product of its time. <laughs> Even you, I, yeah. because I was thinking like, well, but the police officer is black. It's like yes, and he's and useless. He doesn't give a shit as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's like ah. And it's not like there's a like the, the doctor is, is is Indian or something like that. Even though I think that's present in Blowout, maybe one of the doctors is is not non-white or Caucasian, but oh, possibly but I can't remember now. Details. I don't pay, details. I don't pay attention to this. <laughs> no, it, it, it's just something like it, it. It doesn't make or break a movie for me, but it is something that I try to think about. It's kind of like. Um, colorblind casting and all those things it's again it's something we're trying to become more accustomed to i do think it's something that should be less of a checklist and more of a natural thing but it's it's a chicken and the egg situation like not to get not to get too sidetracked but i've listened to a whole bunch of those conversations even at like conferences where it's uh, um, there's like this conference series of conferences they do in venice of the mew mew the Mm -hmm. fashion brand where you have uh, actresses and producers and whatnot just talking about women in the film industry. And I think Sarah Gaddon said this, where it's kind of like, I don't like having the, um, how do you say it? Like when, when you need to have a certain amount of like women on board of a project. Oh, like diversity she, quotas? Yeah, the quotas, yes. The pink quota, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like she's against it in, in principle, or, or in practice, but she's a, she's she like it's kind of like I don't like it, but we need it. <laughs> like we shouldn't need it, but we do, unfortunately, because if you don't use it, there's a whole bunch of people who are not going to have those opportunities. And just to and kind of watching something like this, it's kind of like yes, it's the only black characters are the hoodlums who have mm-hmm. were very stereotyped and stereotypical, like Black Hood. It's like <laughs> listening to the boombox and uh, you're giving a problem to me. Like, I'm like, yeah, it's just, yeah, you know, whatever. It's, 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 it's all right. Like you're watching the movie, you're in the, you're in the groove of everything. It's not like I'm like, oh, racist, stop it. One star. <laughs> just, did you pause and say like, this is racist, I'm not watching. But then I need, it, I need a then, five minute break to just. Uh, but this stress. is such, this is such a knee knee jerk sort of base level criticism as well, like from people who actively dislike the film. Because then you think about it, wow, it's racist because these people are like, well, but they clearly don't do anything anything to anyone. They're just a distraction because, like, when you think about it, all 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 these women are heard by straight white men, or not straight women, just heard by white men, as well. So. Where's that? How's how how's that for? 
so it's it's just like you know is this 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 strange white guy in in museum who just randomly sells this woman gonorrhea just knowingly mind you right like an <laughs> asshole yeah which which by the way just to bring it back to the film like i, I wanted to kind of just quickly touch on the sequence which is an interesting little short film in its own right and it has a few little wrinkles did you notice that she's when she's going there and she's just doing a shopping list for thanksgiving <laughs> pick up their yeah. key looking at the various people yeah. on the in the museum yeah yeah and i'm just thinking to myself now having watched tenebrae is this something like oh is this Dario Argento ripping off that scene because she's clearly watching other people having relationships that she doesn't have and it's like in the square scene mm-hmm. yeah that's a we're, we're talking about how to slow down uh how to slow down scenes and take your time with it one thing that De Palma does is he inserts the hook so you stay interested because there's a risk if you slow something down that it does meander or get dull. Uh, but you are, and maybe it's the the POV thing that he does. Like he sort of looks you know closely at uh, Angie Dixon, but then he looks over at what she's seeing and she's seeing all these relationships. So there's these little hooks, like there's the child that runs away from its parents. And then there's a young couple where the guy puts his hand on his girlfriend's ass. And so there's all these little things. Great move. Then, <laughs> yeah. Such a teenage move. <laughs> <laughs> so there's these little hooks, right? And then there's it always oh, cuts yeah. back to her absorbing it. So, yeah. so De Palma inserts these things that keeps us interested in the slowdown. So, you know, we, we're, we are engaged in it. I, I think it's, it's a very interesting scene uh, to me too, because when I take a step outside of the movie, like sometimes I, I these scenes, some scenes sort of, I don't want to say bother me. That's a little too strong, but I, I'm, I feel removed from it. I'm not connected from it because I say to myself, Jesus, do people really go to art galleries and museums to, do they cruise in museums? Are they looking for hookups? Is that a thing really? Well, I suppose some you know, people do. They, they, they'll just go and say, you know, well, well, having been mounted by their husbands, who just clearly just in, in the sort of the most detached manner possible, and then they just go like, oh, "I really need to fuck well, someone." Right? Where and like, where, where am do I gonna go? find that person? Yeah, <laughs> museum. So, I mean, yeah. but then, but it's cute again because she clearly has no idea where to go, so she goes to a museum. <laughs> so. It doesn't even feel like she's actively looking for it. Like it's. It, it is the desire surf like coming to the surface and you could even contrast it to the killer itself it's mm-hmm. kind of like the opposite it's kind of like this feeling that emerges from inside of you and she's trying to keep it at bay and she's like starts to be flirty but then she changes her mind but then she's like i'm gonna show you my hand just to touch you but then oh there's the ring what do i do it's this back and forth between her which is ah oh, like angie Dickens, she's fantastic in that it's like alone, a, she's it's like a choreographed dance in a mm-hmm. way like she takes seven steps one way turns around he's not there <laughs> then he shows up and you know you, you expect him to pick her up by the waist and raise her above his head or something like it's it's just as like well choreographed. yeah <laughs> like it's <laughs> so it's it's sort of surreal in a way but it's totally mm-hmm. absorbing and uh, I, I think it has to do with just the, the little hooks that uh, De Palma makes us interested in what she's thinking. And it's a yeah, rom com that takes six and a half minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> very rom, very little com. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, com comes later. 
sorry. I'm putting on a silver platter. <laughs> Coming. Anyway. <laughs> but, but again, this is a... This is something that we've—I just feel like a broken record, like because we've just talked about Jalo films and Dario Argento and how he does not ha- does not operate with set pieces. Whereas this film, when you when you think about, I think Nicola, you're, you're saying, oh, well, you know, this film doesn't have too many scenes. No, well, it doesn't have too many scenes, but what it has is these massive set pieces. Like there is yes. this museum set piece which is it which is a story in its own right that ends with people yeah. banging in a, in a taxi cab with apparently onlookers cheering angie dickinson on because they recognize her and she's like oh good for you where are you shooting for people to do this location in philadelphia or new york city this 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 scene the banging in a in a in a taxi cab that was shown on location and by the way another sort of little piece of voyeurism because the taxi driver just adjusts his rearview mirror just to have a good look at what they're doing it's a peeping tom (laughs) like not in my taxi (laughs) i was just like i just like this is like robert de niro just i had my taxi just hosed off from all that semen and it's just like here we fucking go again because it's probably this, it's the same New York that you know, like Travis Bickle would would be working nights in, right? It's only four years before it. If you think about it, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then coming back to these s- scenes and sequences, like the split screen sequence, which is um, a very interesting, also a, a very great way to kind of discombobulate you as a viewer, because you're introduced to two things happening at the or well, three things happening at the same time because you have Michael Caine watching television you have Nancy Allen talking on the phone uh arranging her next deals and her, and her clients and lining up her her work and then you have what looks to be the killer observing people at the same time and you're just to to this is a red herring because then you just disassociate Michael Caine from like basically just remove him from a suspect list right and then yeah. there's the elevator scene, another long sequence. There's the the the, the final shower scene takes five minutes. Another mm-hmm. long yeah. sequence, which is infuriating as all hell, but in the best way possible. It's just there are these like five or six scenes, and maybe the procedural sort of Keith Gordon spying on, um, on 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 Elliot's um, outside of his office. Right, mm-hmm. that's another sort of procedural sort of hashtag blowout rocks sort of scene where you see filmmaking saves the day once again. There's just six or seven scenes in there. It's just they're all great long and then they, they have their own little dramatic arcs in there. I feel I feel like that that's one of the reasons, one I think major reason why this film feels like it's 60 minutes long because it just, you have seven mini stories in there that just transport you. Yeah, constantly giving yep. you setups and payoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, I love he, it. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> doesn't need the ending though. Doesn't need the ending. I I, don't, I think it just doesn't earn it in a weird way. Just I'm, when I when I say the ending, it's just the final scene. So the shower scene, you don't like it? I the, like the scene the in dream. itself. Yeah, I, I like it in itself, but it's kind of like pff. it takes forever. First and I foremost, right? Yes, like it's it is kind of 
at that point you do become a bit start getting a bit fatigued it's like okay we're starting <laughs> another th- tense set piece which again it it works i like the payoff of like oh it removed the the killer removed the 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 the, the boots whatever they were wearing mm-hmm. and they're stabbing her it's like okay which is preceded by michael kane's escape from the hospital where it's kind of like okay so it also takes she, five minutes with people cheering him on as well. Like, what kind of a hospital is it? Yeah, it's like a hellish version. Where you could say, okay, it's a nightmare. It's, Fine. It's a Terry yeah. Gilliam's hospital. Like, Jesus I, Christ. I think what doesn't work for me, like, taking the endings of, I'd say, Blowout and Carrie. This is kind of like the middle child of the two of them. Where it's, where you're following the character and it's kind of like trauma happened and there's card for life. The only thing is, it's going to sound bad, I just don't care about Nancy Allen in this film. <laughs> as much really? as I do about like Travolta in Blowout or about or about uh, whoever the actress was in Carrie. Because you never Susie feel like she's friend. in danger though, because she's always kind of permanently in control as well. She's in control. She <clears throat> is controlled. Like she keeps a, a very good demeanor about everything. It never feels like she's actually like. So you think troubled. the nipples on purpose as well? Like she she knows what he's do- she's doing. She's just like taking it out a little bit. Yeah, she she never feels like she's troubled in a psychological sense by what it's what is happening. It's just kind of like okay, you get to the ending and it's it sounds good on paper, but there's not enough things happening beforehand that makes me go like oh she's been scarred for life especially after you have the jokey scene in the restaurant it feels mm-hmm. like it's a two very different endings uh-huh. meanwhile if you're watching like blowout it's depressing and it works you're watching carrie and you can feel the trauma because this like the she just lost her, her best friend and her best friend is accused of murdering dozens of people with her powers so it works in this one i'm just kind of like Although it's a bit much to the grave could have fucking gone no, that can work, but just in this one, it's, oh, like it's too much. I like that as well. I, this is just too much. That's how I okay. feel. I mean, well, is to me, I'm not sure if, if this is too much. I mean, because again, it kind of just reminds, because you spend just 10 minutes with people talking, so I, th- I feel this is just a reminder of, like, we're still in a Jello film, so there's a POV sort of infiltration sort of scene, and they for some reason they live in the same house. Where's the dad in this scenario? I don't know. Which then clearly, okay, maybe it's just a dream, right? I don't mind it. It's just because I feel like he's getting off on the tension of this. Or not just the tension. Well, yeah. (laughs) We're going to get to it, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I don't know. I don't mind the actual, like, for me, the, the, the scene that could go is the restaurant conversation, which feels like it's just, it's just, yeah it's just I, I don't know i feel like there is a purpose to it but um it feels like someone's un- at gunpoint reciting reciting paragraphs from wikipedia <laughs> i can be sold in the restaurant scene going as well but i you know i i, I like having that one last kick at the cat that uh, first suspense and a and a scare and and the slash and a little bit more blood like i think he just he wants to end uh, the way that he started. He's also bookending it with that too because it started mm-hmm. in the shower and ended in the shower. Um, started with a dream, ended with a dream. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that setup. I like, I, I like that. While we're at it, I totally forgot about this and this is, this is not leaving me alone. Maybe you guys know this. The scene, the, that exact moment, so she's 
Why, by the way, the, so the close-up on the razor blade, and then you have the f the face sort of in the background, and then you see she gets slashed, and then she wakes up. But it's she wakes up in a very specific way, so she's screaming, and then Keith Gordon go goes goes tries to calm her down while the camera's on a crane just pulling up. I feel like I've seen it somewhere, and I can't possibly put my finger on where. Like this idea of some the rude awakening from a nightmare with someone just in absolute tatters mm. while the while while the camera's pulling back and then the film's gone. It feels familiar to me and I don't know where it's from. Mm. If you happen to know, send us an email. Uncajamspod.com <laughs> <laughs> or uncajamspodcast.com slash contact. I don't know. <laughs> Unless you guys know. No, it feels I, familiar. I don't right but that that is a a very De Palma, like the the crane and the the crane and the dolly and the the moving up. But yeah, from a dream, I don't know. Yeah, yeah so I'll, I'll go to bed unsatisfied. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that, I think it's a good time to kind of bring this back to a close. What do you think, boys? Final take, final final quick thoughts on on Dress to Kill, Randy. What what's your what's your opinion? Uh <laughs> I think if you look at the 1980 to 84 period for De Palma, you get a very definitive slice of his work. I, I think that with uh, Blowout in there and Scarface, you start to see his confidence um, and just what he's capable of, of doing. And I, I think that to a certain extent, that begins with Dress to Kill because this is all him. It's, it's, it's his ideas from you know the he he wanted to have the the nurse business because he used to work in a hospital and he always remembered the shoes so the the nurse's shoes that was a a personal thing from you know his his early days the we keep mentioning the 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 certificate that said that yep you've got a vd um that came from a story that an old girlfriend or something was telling him that, you know, yeah, they actually send you this document so that you can go and tell all your partners. So there's ideas and things from De Palma's life. And it's, it's not just the, you know, the, the peeping it's this, this is his ideas, his inspirations and, uh, and, and his, capacity to to put it all together i kept thinking of um citizen kane in a sense that uh i forget who the cinematographer was on citizen kane but anyway the cinematographer wasn't used to someone like orson wells and but he quickly learned that this guy just sees cinema differently he's coming from a world of stage but i'm going to follow his lead i'm the guy that has the experience on film sets here but i'm going to follow orson wells uh lead because he sees things a certain way. And I think that's De Palma. He's just got this great visual sense. He sees these scenes clearly, all the shots. Like he is, he has all these shots in his head. They've been storyboarded uh, before and he's doing all these inserts for the ele the elevator. So the close-ups of the hands and just meticulous. No, we have to hold the razor a certain way so it catches the light, so it gets that flash. So he is just a, a master and i think he's in a in some ways he's he's putting it all together here in in a way um even even more than 
what you might see in Carrie. And I really loved Carrie. Um, I, I think that this is a really strong piece and anyone who watches it is in the hands of a master storyteller. And this is just a really solid, solid film uh, straight through straight through to the end. It's, it's one that wouldn't be made today. It wouldn't look like this today if it were at least. Um, but it's, uh, it's a lucky world we live in that we have copies of Dress to Kill. Fun fact, by the way, the uh, date on the gonorrhea certificate is Scorsese's birthday. <laughs> Scorsese's birthday, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read that somewhere. That's another thing that we didn't really talk about. <laughs> yeah, is, is his connection with um, his contemporaries at the time. And in a way, I think that De Palma is a bit of a leader of that that group that, um, you know, they, uh, like Spielberg and Lucas and Schrader, like they were always uh, reaching out to De Palma for ideas and, you know, it would go the other way as well. But he was he was one of the ring leaders of the, of the new Hollywood. And uh, you can see the, the, the confidence in his, in his work and his vision in Dress to Kill. No, he's one with the lowest out of anyone. Hey, poor guy. Yeah. Nick. Anyway. Go ahead. Love it. Love it. Uh, I agree with pretty much everything you said, Randy. It's it's a brilliant film. I, oh man. I Honestly, I can see myself going back to this more than any other Brian De Palma movie. Outside of like Vision Impossible, but that doesn't count. <laughs> but Such it's, a rewatchable it, film. It's so rewatchable. But, but just uh, like even looking back at all of his films, it has, I think it's because of the way it's structured. It has so many brilliant moments sprinkled throughout. Just the the parts are better than the whole or something like that. It's I a greater than the sum of its parts. Greater than the <laughs> sum of its parts. There you go. That's... There you go. I agree. It's it's yeah, it's inspiring. That's honestly, after having gone through his movies again, Dress to Kill might be the most inspiring to me. There are so many bits in this that I've already taken from in a very light way, but I think I'd like to just double down on certain things. I think just he's such a confident director that I think that's the that should be the main takeaway. It's just find that type of confidence where you know what you want and you're not afraid of how audiences will feel, be it in terms of content, in terms of pacing, in terms of tension and camera choices, just Make your movies visually interesting, and even the most boring scene in like a, an apartment with two people talking is still going to look amazing. So yeah, I I I love Dress to Kill, and I'm so happy we talked about it because it's it's grown on me even more after two years. Awesome! I'm super happy we we talked about it because it actually was a great excuse uh, for me to actually take that Blu-ray off my shelf. <laughs> it was burning <laughs> a hole through my shelf. <laughs> through point. your heart. Uh, yeah. I had to get on the soapbox in here, so I, I, I don't want. Yeah, you know, there, there is this. I can't remember if it's a saying or maybe this is something that Stephen King. I remember once said in a, in response to a question at a Q and A when someone was asking him, uh, "Well, do do you do you think about what your fans would say about you know like certain stories that you write?" Because he also writes these sort of gruesome stories that you could easily now apply a very problematic reading to it's just like oh so are you a misogynist or what's going on in here and then he 
his response to to that question or what do you think about what your fans would say what would or what your fans would want to read his response to it to that question stayed with me and it always keeps staying with me as in if i ever and and he said to to this person if i ever cared about what people want to read i would have never written anything worth reading in the first place it's not about you honey <laughs> it's like it's about it's it's about the story it's not it, it's just what it is i'm not like as a storyteller i'm not a part of this transaction between you and the story you deal with what you need to deal with through through this i've dealt with on, on with this on my end and that's great and i feel this film because it, it feels like it's a hot potato now like it's very it's like, oh, it, it's almost it almost feels like the, the the only way it exists in conversation now is as as an example of a transphobic film from 1980 that's just out of time now and out of step with with where we are as a species that may be but i think it's just as a as a work of of cinema it's fucking great it's just a great genre piece it's a great um, piece of american jalo in a in a in a in a just astounding piece of legacy to Alfred Hitchcock's work that just shows you that he, this guy took this guy's torch and he ran with it to places that Hitchcock never even knew existed. Uh, and it's just such a love, lovely, it's just a great piece of entertainment. It's gross, it's, en- it's engrossing and gross, it's sleazy, it's, it's well, it's compelling, this film that well slows down a few in a few places, but in where it, when it when it matters, it just grips you and it grips you in 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 this in this sort of vice. They just feel you're going to suffocate under the sort of combined weight of the directorial prowess that you're observing and the sort of density of of the of the narrative and the themes that you just already are made acutely aware of. Of their existence in there he makes movies that Argento wished he could make and he makes them with flair and flamboyance that's just unparalleled and this is one of those examples in here this is mo- clearly one of my favorites of his, of his at this point in time just uh, on a single sitting like holy shit this movie is just great and it's i i don't know it's just such a such, such a such an accomplished piece of filmmaking from from a filmmaker that just i think i think randy you just hit it on the nail. he just came to his own right there he in 1980 just he hit his stride and then from there on i think there's blowout there's scarface there's body double and this is his the pinnacle of his of his cinema came right there and holy shit this movie is just great that's where I'm gonna. That's how I'm gonna put it. And then you know, I'm I'm not I'm not responding to emails about this film being transphobic. I'm sorry, because you know it's 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 aimed at mature audiences. You kind of have to you have to be able to kind of just understand this is a movie, and you're not supposed to take shit seriously in here. It's a story <laughs> with a twist and with a lot of fake blood, which also looks less like paint than in anything that Dario Argento ever made. <laughs> Well, ever, I wouldn't say ever, but, you know, up until that point. <laughs> At least in the well 70s. Said. Well said. I, yeah, I, I feel like I, I needed to kind of just get on a soapbox for a second. And if I get cancelled over this because people don't really don't really listen to what you have to say, they just listen for sound bites and just who gives a shit. I know what I'm not making reels of. <laughs> well, they're just they're just lightning rods out there, right? So yes. and this yeah. this is a lightning rod, and it's going to uh, attract attract that. But yeah, 
no, I, I agree with your sentiments. Well, because, you know, I feel like the whole the whole premise of this show is talking about films that are not talked about enough, possibly, or maybe they're not talked about and then fig- finding out why. <laughs> because they're not, not, they might not be very good. Um, happens. When, when you sift through a bin of cinema, there's, there's trash in there too, right? Um, so uh, I, I would say that there's... There's a. We shouldn't be afraid of having conversations just because some 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 people who are just angry at heart look look who are looking for reasons to to be angry at things. We just we have to be able to have mature conversations because we're adults in here. So that's where I'm with now. Top threes. <laughs> with that, let's just do this. Randy, what's your top three moments from Dress okay. to Kill? I am going to start number three, Dennis Franz. I've always liked Dennis Franz as Detective Marino. Uh, And this basically is the beginning of his TV career. He was in Hill Street Blues later in the 80s. And in the 1990s, he he was the lead on NYPD Blue as Andy Sipowitz, a very memorable character. But basically what he does for the rest of his career after this movie is a variation of detective marino and i think he's great like he's got some great <laughs> line reads here i love his uh, excitement uh we got a brutally murdered woman here who's past the point of being embarrassed by anything you got to tell me like <laughs> it's just there's some good dialogue for him he's got a you know great accent and great conviction i just yeah i love it uh i love it what another one of his lines here we want to make sure that my weirdo isn't your person suffering from emotional dysfunction and problems of maladaption. Like it's, <laughs> it's a great line delivery. I love Dennis Franz. Um, number two, I love the, so we talked about the art gallery quite a bit, but I'm going to sort of pinpoint a couple elements of it. The art gallery, I love the musicality of it. Donaggio's music filling this space with all this camera movement um it's it's awesome so there's there's the music i also really like the um the blocking as odd and unusual it is to sort of look at this scene yeah do people really get up and turn around and go back to flirt and then leave again there's an oddness there but there's still a a a beauty to how this is blocked and choreographed um and when she exits the art gallery scene there's this amazing crane shot where camera starts really high and it glides down and it pans across uh, a hot dog vendor and a number of pedestrians and one of them is uh, Bobby in costume in in drag rather Um, and you it doesn't dwell on it but he's there and so there's Mm -hmm. sort of a creepy little bit there and then it the camera moves and settles in on a close-up of uh you know the gentleman with the stolen glove tapping the (laughs) side of the cab which is the weirdest come on but still it's a gorgeous gorgeous (laughs) shot well yeah (laughs) it works works. well well, i'll go to the peat moss museum which is an hour from me (laughs) anyway is what i'm saying (laughs) yeah yeah Okay. Um, and number one, I really like the scene after they uh, 
get it on and she's leaving and she realizes she's late. She didn't pick up the turkey, um, but it's a long sequence and it's not too many shots in there. So um, there's a couple great moments within it, though. I really like where she's looking for stationery to write a note and she comes across the the certificate congratulations you have a venereal disease <laughs> that to me it's not needed in any way for this story but this is an emphatic exclamation mark on you know what you know, the hell am i doing here <laughs> damn you for having an affair damn you for straying from your marriage it's just a great emphatic moment that you know really doesn't need to be there but it's just this great powerful touch Sick um joke yeah, and there's another interesting little uh, bit that she goes back to get her bracelets, but she forgets the wedding ring. And while she's putting on the bracelets, she goes out of focus and her wedding ring on the clock goes in focus. And the clock, I think, is a reference because it's this weird digital clock where you can see all the inner workings of it. Very art deco. Um, I think that's a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's a reference, though, to yeah. the sun because we saw his computer that mm -hmm. way. So that's another nice touch. And then finally in Is the that, same... I, I thought that they banged at home when I saw the clock. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I wonder, yeah, I wonder that every time I see it. Wait, no, no. <laughs> I know where they are. Um, but also with that scene, when she gets into the elevator and the mom and the little girl get onto the elevator and the girl just looks at Angie Dickinson and... You just have this sense if if you know some if you know you've done something wrong and then someone else is looking at you funny, you feel that they can see it on you. And I think that comes out in that, that she just feels so much guilt because someone is looking at her now. She just feels scrutinized by this little girl. I just I think it's just this great little moment. That's and not even on the page. You you could you could argue this is purely indirection. Right. Uh, yeah. And this is just total like another well, he would have had in mind, okay, I'm going to stretch this scene out because she's going to get in the elevator and she's going to go down to the ground floor and she's going to forget the ring and then she's going to have to go back up. That would have been there, but this is a great moment to fill that time with that little girl. Just don't stare at him, honey. Don't stare. That's rude. That's rude uh, stare. And you can, you can see that Angie Dickinson, like she's just sort of feeling... That's insecurity, uh, right? Uncomfortable when... and, yeah. It's a great, great little moment. When, I want to pause for a second in here because I totally forgot about the scene, but it, that's again a, a great example of an, a nice short film in this film because she has she goes through a whole like five stages of grief while she's getting her shit <laughs> in there because then she yeah. at least maybe maybe that's how I read it when she gets up she goes to the phone she phones her husband and then she hangs up on him. Which to me, this reads, she's she's like, I'm done with this. I'm leaving him. I'm leaving my husband, leaving my family. I'm going to give him a call. I'm just saying, I'm not coming back. I'm sorry. And then she and then she bottles it at the end. And then she tries to pick up on the phone again. And then, and then she makes a note. And then she changes the note. Because she says, oh, let's do it again. And no, it's just fine. This just one time. And then she goes and puts these bracelets on. And that to me is an interesting image because she puts them on in like she's aimed towards the camera. It kind of mm -hmm. looks like she's just putting shackles on. Like Ooh, just put my yeah. put my handcuffs like in of my marital slavery back on. I can't find my underwear. I'm going to go home with my bare ass. 
and it's just <laughs> and then she and she forgets the the ring in the process it's it's a whole little again it's like this the museum sequence is just a little short story just in the film yeah that's so easy to miss okay i don't i don't want to just hog the spotlight nick tell me what your <laughs> three moments well just to go quickly over it uh, i love the subway set piece just in general but i, I think it's just uh oh, the, the that shot that I mentioned earlier of the panning inside the cart where it shows the killer briefly in the window and then when it goes back, it's not, it's not A there. A great shot. Again, Ooh. you've seen it countless times, but it's, it's it works. just works. So beautiful. Second is not just one moment, but it's just a series of moments. It's whenever Bobby is in the background, and you mentioned it, Randy, already, but just is there from the start. Oh, she's... The Bobby's there from the start, mm-hmm. <laughs> where you can just see them in the in the crowd. You see them in the background in the museum and just picking them up. And when she's in the when Angie Dickinson is in the taxi, you can see the taxi behind her with Bobby. Uh, same when Nancy Allen is walking around. Like it's great stuff. Like those little details that that make the movie just that extra, just extra extra brilliance. Let's just say. Um, and lastly, the museum scene. Just mm-hmm. mwah, mwah. for my money, it's my favorite set piece in any Brian De Palma movie. Um, I love it, and I think it's. I think Angie Dickinson. She has so little dialogue in those thirty minutes, and you understand everything that she's going through. And in that scene, it's it's way harder than it looks. Um, and I did look it up on on IMDb. I was just curious if like she got any awards. For this performance, she, I mean, she got um, Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror films. Yeah, yeah. but she, she, I think she was nominated, or she maybe got some accolades from critical circles. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think among critics, she was kind of like there. There was this. I think according to what I've written, I've read from you know, like just preparing for this, that there was a drive to get her an Oscar nomination, which would have been. Quite a bit unconservative, unorthodox for <laughs> to get an <laughs> X-rated Jalo film with lots of tits and pubes to be to be nominated for lots Oscars. of pubes, lots of pubes. not hers though. It was Victoria Johnson, who's a redhead. She had to have her, her pubes bleached for this role to, to kind of just for continuity. It but is were those in the R version. It was the R version that would have been assessed in the, the R in the R version. I think. There's just a little bit of pubes. There's there's there, a scene where yeah. there is this the guy's hand lands on her and then just pulls her up a little bit and it's just like it's, yeah. it it kind of gets gynecological for a second, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that was removed, but yeah. Uh, but on, on fun fact, Nancy Allen got a Razzie nomination out of this. Yes, yes, she did. <laughs> Even at the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, which I'd Anna, never heard of. And a Golden Globe, didn't, didn't she? And they got a global nomination, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So for best newcomer when they were doing yeah, that thing. It was one of those weird categories, yeah. Uh, she lost to Natasha Kinski. Jeez, Louise. How about was... you, Jakub? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I need to make a substitution because I don't want to say that you, you know, like we would have, we would have overlapped again with the pan in the subway. Because uh, it's, <laughs> it's a killer scene. It's a killer shot. The entire subway seat set piece is just it's just great in a sense. So I'm gonna make a substitution and I'm just going to just once again remind us of this great split screen sequence that 
that kind of positions you in three different places at the same time, establishes a red herring, uh, makes a a very weirdly sort of uncomfortable conversation about transgender issues in one corner of the frame and establishes Nancy Allen as an absolute fucking hero as well, while you're missing 70% of it because you have to kind of just be cross-eyed the entire time. It's just a great sequence, so that's one. Another one. Uh, In the end of the film, where you have no idea what's going on because you still don't know that there are two people that look like Bobby, and then there's Keith Gordon knocking on the window because Nancy Allen's is in her lingerie and whatever. She's just wondering what's going on, and then very slowly Michael Caine's just popping up behind her and you're actually starting to think that he's, she's going to bite the dust because it's a De Palma film and Nancy Allen does not have a habit of surviving <laughs> in, in there so it's just a great scene that's extremely suspenseful for me but the absolute pinnacle for me is the equivalent of the shower scene in Cycle which is the elevator murder it's just such a brilliantly composed scene it's just amazing yeah. i could watch it on repeat and it's great it's elongated in just the right way it's it slows down time without being too excessive on this and it's infuriatingly suspenseful and it's gruesome as well like he doesn't really he spared no expense like he just he just goes full on argento on this and showing like this is what uh, this is how i would have made Janet Lee bite the dust if I had the opportunity to film this <laughs> film this in, in 1960 it wouldn't have been as gr- anywhere near as graceful as Hitch would have done it it would have been messy as it should be so so in a way he's kind of just tr- this is a weird flex on uh, on on Hitchcock and Argento in my in my books and I, I think he's just doing it very well that's my that's my top three now the bottoms Randy it's your bottoms. All right. Um, this... bottoms. <laughs> you want to see my show bottoms? Your, show us your bottoms. <laughs> All right. I'll start with just sort of a curiosity, a, a, a dishonorable mention. Um, the shower scene at the end, why is the tub not draining? If oh, it's on my list too. Like she clearly doesn't know how to take a shower. <laughs> yeah. Like what's going on? Like that to me says there's something wrong with the tub and that's the bigger nightmare is getting a plumber. But, Maybe this is like the phone screens in, 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 in dreams. You know that when, when people dream, we don't dream about phones. And when we dream about phones, you don't remember what's on the screen. So maybe in her dreams, you don't know, you know, like there are details missing that you just, it doesn't, you, you don't know that you, you have to kind of just leave it, leave it to drain. Maybe. So, I know that so. when it's raining in a dream, <clears throat> that means you have to pee. So maybe is that an element of the shower? I don't know. She, so, and then she wakes up just... <laughs> In this sort of bed, just <gasps> covered in piss, yeah, <laughs> and scared to death, terrible. And Keith going goes like, "What's happened?" Oh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's there's that. So, so that was sort of a. <laughs> um, so an, another nitpicky little thing is Angie Dickinson comes out of the gallery, Nancy Allen comes out of the hotel. Cliche alert. The cab that you need is always parked right in front of the facility. So, no worries. Anyway. So she would have had an Uber sort of lined up already. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this here is not a, a, a function of the uh, a function of the era at all. Uh, there's 
no work at all for the the guy that's following her to pull up and and uh, be in the perfect spot and the cab was there for Nancy Allen anyway um I will uh, so I'll I'll mention this as sort of a, a bottom as well so the punks in the subway scene I love the subway scene um I do feel they're somewhat poorly conceived they're somewhat awkward they have terrible line deliveries and there's a slight awkwardness too is that even though nancy allen is trying to get as far away as possible from you know the stairs and she's sort of backing up just for her own safety because someone's following her and she's peering forwards there's a ton of space and why does she like back right into these punks so i don't i i sort of think that the, the one guy says what's she pushing on me for I think that's sort of a legit, legitimate you know, it's question. Like, There's all this space, lady. <laughs> yeah. What the? <laughs> so she, yeah, she's bumping into him, and he sounds like a you know a wounded six year old talking to his buddy, who's the mouthpiece. What's she pushing on me for? Like he's not saying to Nancy Allen, back off. He's saying, what's she pushing on me for? So, and then, and then anyway, another guy comes over, and I think he has a terrible line delivery. He's like, I'm gonna break your ass. Yeah, and I, why break me? <laughs> Jesus. Yes, and that's brutal I'm too. Like, what so, a line! What a line! So oh there's a certain <laughs> poorly conceived approach to the just that whole uh, interaction. Um, and then finally, and again, like I really love this movie, so it's hard to pick on something. But when I, I look at this through the lens of what was happening in the '70s, like there was a, a, an element of naturalism that was coming out in the voice of a lot of the other new Hollywood uh, folks like Coppola, Sidney Lumet, you know, you look at something like Rocky, like there's this, there's this earthiness um, to those films. Like there's a naturalism there and it, it, I don't know, in in a way it's not really a complaint, but, but sometimes I do feel a little bit removed from this because I feel that I'm following these characters sort of on a, on an, on an academic level. I'm interested in their Cause journey. Cause it's a movie. Happen. Cause it's a movie. A, yes. Watching a movie. <laughs> but if, if I did feel connected to Keith Gordon, or if I did feel a little bit more emotional connection to them, that would help me a little bit. And again, it's it's a it's a weird point because that's not really what De Palma is doing. But sometimes I do feel a little bit disconnected from from the characters here, just sort of on a emotional personal connection. This is something that kind of again pops out. Uh, I can't remember if it popped up in the blowout episode, or maybe I don't know. It feels like De Palma is making films with an express intent to make them look like they're kind of made in the sixties. Totally, a hundred percent. Um, like the color you know, grading, the sort of the, the sort of like the diffuse filtering on on everything, it kind of make it makes it look like he's trying to kind of just. If you just stumbled upon it just by browsing channels, would be like, "Is this Vertigo? <laughs> what? Whoa, pubes? Hell, hey, Alfred? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just what's going on in here? Yeah, yeah. So it, he may. I, th- I think this is part of it because, like, when you think about like John D. Avilton or William Friedkin and these guys, the new Hollywood guys. They all came from documentary backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I feel a little weird listing this as a bottom, but it is it, it is something. As I do watch this, sometimes I feel a little bit disconnected, and uh, I I think it's because there's a certain lack of emotional connection I, I have to the characters. Now, but 
I also realized, yeah, De Palma's doing something else. Like he's saying, you're coming into my storybook and it's strictly a storybook world and I'm the boss of how the pages turn and what you're going to see. And we're sort of working in that realm. It's not like a, a theater where the proscenium wall has been removed and you're practically on stage with the actors. It's, it's not that setup, but, um, but at any rate, that, that disconnection, I'll, it's I'll not, mention it's, it now. It's not like a Lars von Trier sort of dogville situation that the walls <laughs> are just, just written in, ch in chalk outlines on the, <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> and yeah. you have to pretend that you don't see Paul Bettany masturbating in there. <laughs> just, or, or that, you know, like for some reason you don't see Stellan Skarsgård's ball sack. <laughs> just an image I can't forget. <laughs> just seen it way too many times at this point. I, I had forgotten it actually, so yeah. You're welcome. I, I didn't I didn't need that. <laughs> it's a good reminder for everyone. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Nick, is it your turn, I think, right? Yes. So we, we we've mentioned like, you know, the whole explanation of why is the killer meh together with the restaurant scene they can kind of go both of them to be honest i'd rather take keep the restaurant scene because it's funny like you mentioned friendly just it's amusing in its own way so yeah just but but yeah the the explanation of 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 bobby is clumsy let's just say that mm -hmm. we talked about it enough <laughs> second during the murder scene of angie dickinson i think the reason why something like Something like Psycho still works, or even a Dario Argento movie, is that Psycho you don't see the impact, and Dario Argento it's all about like intense close-ups where you can cut like pieces of meat or whatever. And in this one, Brian De Palma wants it to be very graphic while also keeping like Angie Dickinson in the shots, mm -hmm. so he's actually like he's cutting her, her, her arm or her face, but but it's it's kind of odd in the execution. Like you can feel that they're pulling their punches or like you don't have to hurt the actress. There's some makeup on it. They have to remove something like that. So it's, it's slightly distracting. I'm watching the scene. I'm kind of like, mm. I'm disappointed in you. You know that it's again, <laughs> honestly, Deep Red did it better five really? years before that. Like, yes. This is something that I was just in phenomena. I was just like, finally, like you can see how the razor is going through Daria Nicolodi's face and it's actually makeup. Right, and it's not like oh, it's it's just a mannequin now. <laughs> we're I was watching phenomenon. I was thinking the same thing. It was like, yeah, just when they're cutting people's faces and stuff, like you can tell they they cannot actually it's, do that. To me, this was dangerous. disturbing in the best best way because you just see the razor going just like this through her face. I'm like, it's just a dirty <laughs> razor, you know. It's just red and just like, go against her face. It's very dull, but just don't hurt her, please, because you can still cut a little. <laughs> Because it's not that it doesn't, I, mean, I don't want it to look real, but it looks, it makes me feel uncomfortable because it's almost like I don't expect it as well. It just works. True. I don't true. know. I, I think, I think other, other scenes have dated better in that, in that regard. Mm. Like Psycho, if you don't show it, nothing's going to be updated if you don't show it. <laughs> Bless him. He was a lucky man. Anyway, lastly, there is, there is this cab chase that Nancy Allen has with the with Bobby. And she like gets no. in the car with this guy. And there's no. this shot. <laughs> this horrible, horrible shot. Where like the guy takes a turn to the left. And they add this 
I don't even know how they did it back then. Nowadays, I'd say, like, they have this digital distortion shot where it's kind of zooming in and out, and they're they're distorting the image so that it looks like it's tilted. It's so weird. It's so off-putting. It's awful. Thank God it's not the scene I have on my list. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine what's, what's your moment, then. <laughs> but, yeah, that, those, are, those are the bottom three for me. Okay. I was grasping at straws here. Oh, I've got two genuine ones, but like, okay, so I've got, I've got a few dishonorable mentions that, like, Randy already mentioned that Nancy Allen clearly doesn't know how to take a shower because it's just filling up. <laughs> like, at some point, she could just sit down and do like a full on nightmare on an Elm Street submerge <laughs> <laughs> with the glove. Um, <clears throat> so, okay. Another one, a little moment that's just, let's just say, uncalled for. And I didn't know, well, okay, well, there, there's one that I didn't know on which list to put it, so I didn't want to put it on any list, the Napoleon line. It's just like, I don't know, it's it belongs on both, really. It's just like, no, it doesn't, like, you know, she, he invented the Napoleon when he wasn't fighting somewhere. I was just like, no, he didn't. <laughs> just, you clearly don't know what you're talking about. A- Angie, actually, Angie, this was invented by a Danish chef, and then the, uh, it was apparently after Napoli, after Naples. It was called the Napoletano. That was then reappropriated and stolen by the fucking French. How surprising. Yeah. So, Angie, you're you're incorrect. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> Angie's incorrect on this one. Anyway, so another little one is when Dickinson's husband, like it basically just when it kind of exits the, the dream sequence in the beginning and it just, he just goes and and she just lies there like a starfish, just counting seconds. And then when he finishes her, he just gives her this pat on the face, uncalled yeah. for, just uncalled for. Just like she's a horse who did a good job. I'm like, what? I mean, I, I see the point of this, but it's just like it was already, I, I was told everything I needed to, to know without this, this pat on the face. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very graphic it's almost too graphic for its own it's just like fucking the disrespect <sighs> okay <clears throat> when the taxi driver decides to just take matters into his own hands because he sees in in his wing mirror oh this, this woman's approaching so he just opens the door <laughs> smacks it, and she falls face first like a pancake <laughs> she doesn't <laughs> get up just <laughs> splat that's the scene <laughs> from the chase no it's just like and then you, and then we cut away from it. It's just it's just such an such an oddly sort of positioned scene. But there's two actual scenes that I have problems with. So the excessive split diopters in the restaurant scene at the ending. It's just like you could either have this conversation just as is, or not have it at all. This whole scene could go. And the the hospital scene where Michael Kane kills the nurse and he takes three and a half minutes to untie her shoes. As the camera pulls away, and there's this sort of ring of fans around going like, Woo! and by the way, like when the, when the, fi- the ca- it even goes to the beginning of the scene where the camera tracks behind the the nurse, and there are these people roaming like like drugged out zombies in straight jackets, in a like a communal setup. Ooh. is this what? Is this what a psychiatric hospital looks like? <laughs> it's very odd. So yeah, it's just it just feels almost out of place because it's obviously like it's all tinted blue. Why? It's just yeah, 
if like there are two scenes in, in like once once they once they actually dispose of Michael Caine and they do their sort of psycho homage, which, which I can all, honestly see. Okay, this is this is what it needs to. Be. This is symmetri- symmetrical and whatever. Great, but then there's this there's ten minutes of downtime that I could, I could just immediately go from the the psychiatric guy talking about boners into the shower scene, and this would have been. Like ten minutes, film will be ten minutes shorter and will be a bit that much better. <sighs> I think we've done it, have we? Yeah, <clears throat> Dress to Kill is can be rented and or purchased from all major vendors and also acquired physically on DVD and Blu-ray. Also on HBO Max in the US, if you live there, you can watch it that way. But I actually seriously recommend getting the Arrow release if you can get your hands on hands on this. It's just like they there's I think they have most of like the uh, Palmas from 70s and 80s up until I think I want to say Raising Cain which is 92. Anyway, yes. get, yeah, get your hands on them on, on, on that if you can. Anyway, so that that's it for for today. That's it for this episode of Uncle Gems. So, where can we find you and your stuff? So, Randy, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Randy Burrows, and you can find me letterboxed at Bratch7, and you can find some of the work that I write on clapperltd.co.uk. And there are at least three pieces coming, by the way, so just get ready for some Randy knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Randy ramblings. I wouldn't call them ramblings. These are, you know... There's some ins. This, these are Randy's insights. This, is what I'm gonna call it. Uh, yeah, seriously, go and go and go and read this stuff. It's great. Nick, tell us where you are. Where you are. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at nickyran 97 and there you can find my link tree, link tree forward slash enjoy the movies, where you can find links to all of my films and videos on YouTube and Vimeo, as well as my letterbox to reviews, clapper articles, and you can also find the Death by Adaptation podcast, where every two weeks me and you and Gledo from Clapper talk about a classic book and compare and contrast it against its cinematic adaptations. And right now we've just released an episode where me and Carson, actually, Carson Timar from Clappercast talked about Call Me By Your Name. So be sure to check that out. Wowee. Cla- <laughs> Some of these classics, by the way, I have to say, the, the Fifty Shades of Grey still bothers me. It's a classic. <laughs> knock it. <laughs> you haven't read it. Don't knock it. You try it. I'm not gonna buy anymore. Anyway, <laughs> It'll, that yeah. series will have a shelf life, though. Really? Yeah, my shelf. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't own them. I don't own them. Did you actually pay money for it? No, 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 Jesus. Okay, <laughs> no. we're starting a GoFundMe to kind of get get Nick his money back. <laughs> They're nowhere oh. to be found. Thankfully, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Anyway, you can find me at about Film on Twitter as Jakob Flash on Letterboxd. You can find my writings on flashonfilm.com and on Clapper as well. And then you can also follow the show on Twitter, Instagram. Actually, I should probably start saying Instagram and Twitter because I'm, I'm getting better at tw- on Instagram than I'm, than I'm at Twitter. And I think we're very soon we'll have more followers then than we have on Twitter. So follow us there as well. Yeah. And, on, and on TikTok and on Facebook at Pod. Um, so, and also we can find the show on uh, on our website uncutgemspodcast.com is where you need to go to find out all, all about the links 
to find um, the archival episodes and find out what we have on our Patreon. And from there, you can go to our Patreon and subscribe. Patreon.com slash Uncultured Three bucks a month buys you extra shit to listen to while you get on with your life, such as tie-ins, retrospectives, and our David Lynch Marathon for 2022. And then this month, we've released a tie-in to the De Palma Marathon that we're doing where we talked about Blowout and a, and a retrospective of three Dario Argento films. So, so you go and listen. And then also next week, there's going to be a Dune episode of the David Lynch Marathon to listen to. On top of that, you can send us an email. Uncutgemspod at gmail.com is where you can go or certain alternatively uncutgemspodcast.com slash contact. You can fill a form if you feel like you like filling, filling out forms. And also, while we're at it, if you want to help us, you can you can always well support us by buying us a coffee, coffee.com slash uncountrymspod, which is you know uh three bucks again, but this with, with no long-term commitment, so we can you can help us keep the lights on that way. And if you don't feel like spending money, you can always if you you can always leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening uh to the show. So I don't want to kind of force you to go to Spotify and then listen then just fake listen to five episodes. So if you have opportunity to leave a rating or a review on the app that you're listening through like good pods or spotify or apple or wherever you're whatever you're using do so it helps a lot because we're a new show and then every new person who, who ends up discovering us and liking us is a treasure that we will you know that we will cherish so there's that so be sure to tune in next week because we'll be continuing our depart march the Palm Madness, um, as we'll be talking about well, moving up the decade now. So we did done the 70s, we've done 80s, and now we're moving up to the 90s. And what are we talking about? Snake Eyes Snake is what eyes. we're talking about. <laughs> so Nick is already elated because he's a he's a he's a he's a cage master. <laughs> so it's gonna be great. Anyway, so we're gonna be talking about Snake Eyes, so look out for that. And in the meantime, I hope you have a great day and we'll see you we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.